I can say with 100% confidence that my dietary and lifestyle choices are carrying me through this diagnosis. And I had a major intense surgery that was 10 hours long and I walked to my post-op appointment only two weeks after my surgery. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Manchester, New Hampshire, Port Arthur, Texas, and Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 79 of season 5, number 378 overall. It's also a mega-sized episode of the show, because today we will be doubling up on information and inspiration as our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series rolls on. And today we will be starting with the story of Allison Tierney. Allison has been on the show before. It's been a while. And what has happened between her last visit and today has changed her life, really turned it upside down. Because Allison is an oncology dietitian who has spent her entire career helping others as they battle cancer. But now Allison has found herself on the other side of that equation. She now finds herself battling breast cancer. And she's here to talk about her journey and the way that she's been getting through it. And two of the biggest ways that she's been finding help throughout the course of the treatment, a plant-based diet and fasting in between treatment sessions. It's really an emotional journey, but it has some incredible tips So the fasting and the plant-based diet, two big parts of the equation for Allison. Also today, we're going to be doubling up in our fight because Dr. Christy Funk is back for part two of her three-part series with us this year. And she will be putting the power of prevention right back in your hands. Because the fact is that breast cancer, as we've talked about, is far more than just genetics. The greatest risk appears to be from the choices that we make. And so Dr. Funk will be sharing with us how these simple everyday decisions can be made to either increase our risk or reduce it to just a fraction of what the average person will face. The best part about this conversation is that she will be unleashing the power of new research that can help guide us to make the healthiest decisions possible. So she will be here in just a little while. But our mega episode of inspiration, of hope, and healing begins today with Allison Tierney and how fasting and a plant-based diet are two pillars that are helping her as this oncology dietitian suddenly finds herself on the other side of the treatment plan. Allison, thank you so very much for being here. Thanks for having me, Chuck. It's an honor to be here. The honor is all mine. And in all honesty, I never thought you and I would be sitting down to do a show like this. You have been on the show previously, but you were 
talking about your work as an oncology dietitian, and then here we are today, you find yourself in the middle of a breast cancer battle. Let's talk about this. You were diagnosed in May of 2022. When did you first know that something was amiss? Yeah, that's a great question, man. So I actually found, I should say, my OBGYN found a lump during my annual exam in actually April of this year. And it was actually only 10 days post breastfeeding my second child. So it was very quickly after finishing breastfeeding with her. And I went for my annual exam. And just during the self breast exam and the breast exam that she does, we found a lump. And we didn't really think much of it because it was only 10 days post breastfeeding. For many people listening, they know that breastfeeding can change a lot of things about the breast. And we thought, you know, clogged milk duct, whatever it might be, we just didn't really think much of it. However, I went home and made sure that I could feel the lump myself and kind of kept an eye on it. And I really think it was my job, my the people that I work with, all of the things that allowed me to go home and just have this intuition to be able to feel the lump, kind of feel what it feels like. And if it changed or if, if it didn't change to kind of keep an eye on it. So that was in April of 2020 this year. And we didn't really do much about it. Now, fast forward a few weeks, I kept feeling it. And every time I felt the lump, I felt really anxious. That's the only way that I can describe it is that I felt really anxious. I had had a lump before between my pregnancies that had been ultrasounded, went away after a cycle, and it just went away. So kind of part of me thought, well, maybe it'll just go away too. But after it didn't go away, I messaged my doctor, mostly because I was preparing for a conference where I was the main breast cancer nutrition speaker and came across some of the research and studies about breast cancer after breastfeeding. I thought, oh. I feel like this feels like a really good sign that I need to have some peace of mind. So I messaged my doctor and said, you know, this lump hasn't changed. I continue to feel it. And she was very swift to get an ultrasound scheduled. So I went into the ultrasound. um, I think it was about a week after that. So this is um, May of this year, very early May. And I was in the ultrasound. And because of my work in the oncology space, I felt very familiar with what happened And it was almost like I could just tell during the ultrasound that things were not necessarily looking the way they should look. And the tech left the room and I had a ding on my my watch saying that I was scheduled for a new procedure. And I thought to myself, oh, they just scheduled me for a mammogram. This really isn't what it's supposed to be. And went in for my first mammogram ever and had the mammogram. And then at the facility that I go to, you go into the next room and thankfully they deliver that day results. They have the radiologist look at the mammogram right away. And so I sat in the next room and I was very nervous and she walked into the room and I could just read her face. I knew exactly what she was going to tell me. And she said, so, and I honestly, I just broke down crying. And the reason for that was because I felt like I've seen every scenario play out from here. I've seen, you know, the good cases and I've seen the very severe, you know, um, unfortunately life ending scenarios as well. And so when there's so much unknown, that's all you can think of is you go straight to the bad. So anyways, there, she said, the next step was that we needed to get a biopsy. And I said, well, how soon can we get a biopsy? Because I'm supposed to hop the plane on Friday to be the main speaker on breast cancer nutrition. And she just kind of looked at me like, 
what? <laughs> and so thankfully they were able to schedule a biopsy within just a few hours that afternoon, got my biopsy. So this was a Tuesday diagnosed on Thursday and boarded a plane on Friday. And then after the presentation and that weekend, um, the following Monday, I met right away with uh, a surgeon and talked about the next plans. So that's kind of where it all started. And um, there's even more to dive into if you want, but I'll let you ask any questions you have from there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes and obviously I'll never be able to, but that seems to be such a jam-packed week full of emotions. Then you've got the kids, then you've got the conference, the travel that comes with that. And just the not knowing and the angst and, and, you know, what are the next steps? And man, I, I just, has there ever been such a trying week in your life? No, I mean, probably those that week and the week that followed are probably the most difficult in the entire journey because it's so much of the unknown, the unknown. We, we fear the unknown and there's a quote out there and I don't know it perfectly, but it's really like when we don't have knowledge about what's going on, we can lead it to believe to be so much worse than it actually is. And I think that's what happens for most people in that situation is that you, you fear the worst and you absolutely, absolutely do. Um, and the other thing too, is, you know, I was diagnosed here and, I hopped a plane by myself. I was, you know, leaving my family for the weekend. And of course, my husband's going through this emotional experience as well. Although he's not physically going through it, he's emotionally going through it. And here I am going to board a plane and leave for a few days. Um, and everyone told me, my whole family, I don't really only shared it with my family, like, you don't have to go, you don't have to do this. Uh, and I thought, I think I do need to do this. I need to do this for me. And I need to have this experience of something that I was looking forward to. And I only told one person at the conference that I was going to um, about my diagnosis because I wasn't, we didn't know have a whole ton of information quite yet, but I also didn't want it to be this really awkward experience where I was diagnosed and I'm speaking on the topic without all these questions. So I think that was really hard is being able, leaving my family for the weekend and being alone. And of course my husband was worried about me too. Um, so it was definitely a trying weekend, but I'm actually really glad that I did it. And it was a um, plant-based nutrition conference about lifestyle medicine. And so it was, it was like kind of the perfect thing that I needed that weekend anyways. For sure. And you know, the other thing that strikes me is when you've been on the show previously, we, we've talked about your other health struggles, which brought you to a plant-based diet to begin with. And so you are a very, very, very healthy eater. You do live a very healthy lifestyle, and yet you still got this diagnosis. I know that you must have thought about those two things. Did you ever ask yourself, why me? What did I do? hundred percent. I think everybody asks that question. Um, and I think it's helpful, but really hard to also hear when people hear about the diagnosis, say like, you're one of the healthiest people that I know. And I, that, that was really hard for me. And I actually really happy to hear that I'm the healthiest pe person that they know, but at the same time, really difficult that I still end up with this diagnosis. But at the same time, what might not be what might be surprising to some people is that I'm not 100% surprised. I mean, I am surprised from the standpoint that I was diagnosed at the age of 33. Um, my mom's a breast cancer survivor. My grandmother on um, my dad's side is a breast cancer survivor. My godmother, who's my mom's cousin, is a breast cancer survivor. So we have this really extensive family history of not only breast cancer, but other cancers. So it's kind of 
the reason, part of the reason that I switched to a plant-based diet was because of not only my PCOS and infertility that I know we've discussed here on the show before, but because of this overwhelming amount of cancer in my family. So from a standpoint, I'm not super surprised, but at the same time, how early I have experienced this diagnosis is one of the things that is um, so surprising, I should say. And based off of that, I was actually surprised to learn that I do carry a genetic mutation. So my mom was diagnosed at breast cancer at 49, and we actually never had genetic testing done with my mom's breast cancer diagnosis because they didn't believe that it was related. They thought it was hormonally related because my mom had had a hysterectomy and her thyroid removed. So they related it to the hormone replacement therapy that she was on for just a short period of time. So when I was diagnosed at 33, I automatically qualified for genetic testing. But then when it came back, the genetic counselor called me and like, we actually did find that you do have a mutation. I thought, what, really? Because only five to 10% of cancers actually have a genetic mutation related to it. So it was actually a little bit surprising. So as you can imagine, there was lots of emotions back and forth, like, not surprised. This is my family's history, but I tend to be the healthiest person people know. And, and so there's lots of emotions that surround that. And there is definitely emotions of anger. You know, I was at a major league baseball game a couple of weeks ago, and I see a lot of the um, choices that are being made around me nutritionally and other lifestyle things. And I just think to myself, like, man, I'm the one sitting here with this diagnosis. And sometimes it feels like a bad person to think that, but at the same time, it's very angering to have those frustrations. And I'm sure a lot of people experience that. But to be honest, I only feel that every once in a while. Um, most of the time, it really feels like, okay, this is the next step. This is what we need to do. And I just keep moving forward. Yeah. I mean, you can't beat yourself up for thoughts that enter into your mind. I think grappling with those kinds of emotions is perfectly natural and normal and in itself healthy in a way, right? It's absolutely healthy, but let's kind of flip the script here, right? So that that's kind of the doom and gloom and the why me stuff. But the other way that we could look at this, at least I look at it, is because you, you just mentioned your infertility and your PCOS, and many said that that was a hopeless situation. You're able to flip the script on that. You have wonderful, healthy children now. Now you've got another challenge. So it's like, okay, well, let's do this again. And so while you were not able to prevent breast cancer, what the statistics and what the research also shows, though, is that with that healthy diet, with that healthy lifestyle, the outcome on this is so much better than it could otherwise be. Do you find solace in that? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think it's one of those things is that, that thought like, well, I did all the right things. Like, how could this happen if I did all the right things? And I think there are a lot of people, not even in just breast cancer type diagnoses, but also other chronic diseases and so forth. Um, But then it's this realization that all the right things that you do or that you did actually are going to be the things that help you through this entire process. And I can say with 100% confidence for myself that my dietary and lifestyle choices are very much carrying me through this diagnosis. And Chuck, I'm sitting before you and I'm halfway through my chemotherapy treatments right now. I've had six cycles and I have six cycles left and I still feel relatively really well. And I think those are the things that are helping me get through this process. And I had a major intense surgery in July that was 10 hours long with a long intensive recovery. And I walked to my follow-up post-op appointment only two weeks after my surgery. And so I really credit this to my diet and lifestyle, but also my attitude and things like that, that helped me get through this entire um, path. 
Well, I guarantee you that unless people knew your story, looking at you right now, if they're watching this on YouTube and they've had it on mute for whatever reason the entire time, um, first of all, turn your speakers on because this is a phenomenal, inspirational story here. Uh, but number two, you you look absolutely fantastic. Like it would be impossible for anybody to say, oh yeah, she looks like she's really going through it right now. And that again is a testament to what it is you were just talking about. It's helping to carry you through this difficult time. Um, I want to go back to your story because I, I kind of cut you off there when you would return from the conference and you're going in to meet with the doctor again on that Monday. So pick us back up. It's Monday morning. You return from the conference. What happens? Yeah, so I go and have an appointment with the breast surgeon and the original diagnosis that I was diagnosed the previous Thursday was DCIS or ductal invasive carcinoma in situ um, with microinvasion. So essentially what that means is that they found that the tumor had stayed within the milk ducts with only like this tiny little bit that had left the milk duct. So this is actually considered stage zero breast cancer very early on with just like this little bit that left. So that is the original diagnosis. When I get to the surgeon, um, she shows me the MRI, we start talking about it. Um, and the other thing about this is that where I'm treated and where I'm going through all of this is the place that I used to work as an oncology dietitian. So I know all the doctors, I know all the nurses, um, and on a personal level as their colleague. And so this is something that's, you know, part of my story in that I think it'd be hard for some people to do that, but I've actually found it very encouraging to be with people and, you know, they're taking care of me as one of their own, but they do that for every one of their clients, but or their patients, I should say. Um, but anyways, we get in and we're talking about it. And the biggest, the first thing she tells me is I kind of think I'm coming in here for maybe a lumpectomy, maybe radiation and kind of move on, right? That's some of the story I had made up in my head with this diagnosis of DCIS. Um, and it turns she's, you know, she's like, I'm actually really worried that this is invasive, not just DCIS. And I, you know, my mom and my husband were with me and our, you know, we just kind of felt like we got hit in the face all over again. And so I had to sit for another biopsy and this was a mammogram and guided biopsy. And um, they took 12 other samples of the, the tumor that they found and it still came back with this DCIS with microinvasion. So the next step was, okay, surgery. Um, I was um, recommended a single mastectomy without sparing my nipple because where the tumor was located. However, once it came back to be a genetic mutation, it's an automatic recommendation for a double mastectomy. And then there's a, there's so many different pathways that women could choose to go down here um, in this particular scenario. So it was a single, it was for me as a double mastectomy with no reconstruction, or you could have reconstruction with um, implants, or you could have reconstruction with something called a D-flap surgery. So I ended up opting for a double mastectomy with D-flap reconstruction. So essentially what the D-flap reconstruction is, is it essentially uses your own tissue to recreate the breast for reconstruction. And one of the biggest things that I think about in this process for me about how I ended up choosing the reconstruction path that I chose and the fact that I chose reconstruction is at the age of 33 of diagnosis, I wanted to be able to look in the mirror in a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, and think, okay, what is going to be the best emotional choice for me in this? 
what do I want to look at in the mirror that's going to be not so much of a reminder of this trauma, but also an uplifting, encouraging. And that's how I chose to go with reconstruction. Some women choose to stay flat, some choose implants, some choose the C-flap and other types of situations. So this was the best choice for me. And I'm really happy with this choice, but it also means that it's a very intense surgery. It's a 10 hour long surgery where you have a breast surgeon and a plastic surgeon. um, And you um, essentially, you you know, all of your breast tissue is removed. In my case, both of my nipples were removed. And then also um, a huge, you know, scar from hip to hip um, in on my abdomen. And that's where part of the reconstruction comes into play. Um, so we go into surgery knowing, and I had to wait eight weeks for surgery. And I knew that it was going to, by choosing this path, it would be a long time to re- surgery because it takes two very skilled surgeons and it's a 10 hour procedure. So it takes up the whole day for an OR. So waiting that eight weeks to have surgery, knowing this tumor was still in me, that was incredibly difficult. Um, and there's lots of thoughts and processes of like, okay, is this cancer spreading? What is it going to be doing in these eight weeks? However, we do know from research that, you know, most breast cancers take between three to five years to actually develop to the point where we can actually feel it. So in the grand scheme of things, eight weeks is not a long time. However, emotionally, it is a very long time to wait. And we knew going into that surgery that I would have a sentinel node or a lymph node tested to make sure that there was no cancer involvement in the lymph nodes. If it happened to be that there was involvement in the lymph nodes, that they would not be able to proceed with the reconstruction portion of the surgery at that time because I would have to have radiation. And radiation can unfortunately very much impact um, some of the surgical outcomes when it comes to reconstruction. So going into surgery, we were praying for, you know, no lymph node involvement. And if it was no lymph node involvement, the whole thought was, okay, I'd have surgery and then I'd be done. Um, and makes it's a lot more simple than that because it's very much an emotional journey for the rest of your life as well. Um, however, so we had surgery, the lymph nodes came back ne- negative. I was able to proceed with the whole rest of surgery, and I just had this big recovery ahead of me. Well, fast forward um, about a week or so, I w- looked at the pathology reports that came back because um, in surgery they send the actual tumor for further pathology to confirm this DCIS with microinvasion. Um, and being in the healthcare space, I had looked at many pathology reports, although I'm not a physician. Um, I mistakenly read the path re- report without talking to my doctor first. And I thought to myself, wow. I'm reading things that I don't want to be reading that we didn't want to see. Um, And what ends up happening is that it comes back as a different diagnosis. It is not DCIS. um, It is actually invasive ductal carcinoma, which means that the the tumor has um, no longer stayed within the milk duct. It is actually spread throughout a little bit more of the breast. And during that process, then the next step is waiting for prognostics. Prognostics is essentially the estrogen receptor positive or negative component. And when we're talking about estrogen or progesterone, and then there's also another one called HER2. And um, it comes back highly estrogen and receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, but we need to wait on the HER2. The next testing comes back that it's, we don't know about the HER2. So we have to wait more and send for more testing. And um, so again, it's just this constant wait that so many cancer patients experiences that fear um, and the anxiety and the unknown, this constant, like knowing that if this comes back positive, I'm going to be having chemotherapy. And so 
Long story short, um, comes back that there was actually multiple tumors within the breast. Um, although we were only feeling one, there was actually a couple of different tumors. One of the tumors was DCIS, but other tumors were invasive ductal carcinoma. And um, the DCIS was testing positive for this HER2 component. Um, and if it's HER2 positive, it's kind of an automatic qualifier for treatment, essentially. And they were unable to detect in the um, invasive component, whether it was DCIS positive. So we had to make this decision of, do we operate off of the fact that clinically speaking, this is HER2 positive. So, um, you know, coming back to being an oncology dietitian, I very much understood all of this lingo and all the things that we were talking about, whereas my family and my husband were like, wait, what? And very much confused. So in this whole process, being an oncology dietitian, being in this space has been actually very helpful and in some portions, it's it's been a curse at the same time, where you kind of know the stories, you know what to expect. And um, so from there, it was um, found that it was no longer just surgery that I would need. It was recommended to have chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and also um, endocrine therapy would be recommended once I finished treatment. So um, right now, I'm in the middle of my chemotherapy. I actually finished uh, my halfway point last week. I get treatment every Thursday for 12 weeks with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And after the six more treatments of the chemotherapy, I'll switch over to just immunotherapy every three weeks to finish out for another nine months. So it's actually a much longer process and journey than we ever anticipated. Um, but we're moving through it and we're thankful for that. For sure. You know, and, and glass half full approach here. I would think that given the nature of your profession, I think that moving forward, this is going to help you have an even greater understanding of what your patients are going through and everything that encompasses a diagnosis like this. And you're getting, you know, the, I mean, as much as it seems like they could throw at you, it seems like it's being thrown at you right now. And that gives you great insight and great wisdom. And I think that once all of this is behind you, all of that wisdom is going to be to the benefit of everybody who comes into your professional life. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that's the thing that I constantly think about. Yes, I, I'm doing this for me and my family, but it, you know, if I can think about it, okay, how can I help just one other person? And even if it's just sharing my story of how we found this, right. Um, and knowing that, yes, I was diagnosed at 33 and all of very good plant-based diet and, and physically active. I'm a healthy weight. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I've never done any of these things. I don't eat red meat, right? Like that's one of the things you go into the oncologist and he asks you these questions and I can say, no, 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 no. I, I don't participate in these things. And I hope that it can be awareness that that yes, we can definitely reduce our risk of having breast cancer or other cancers or other chronic disease through these healthy lifestyles. Um, but it also doesn't mean that it's not possible. And um, so from that, I really hope that people take awareness from it, right? Know your body. Had I not come home, felt the lump that my doctor was talking about, paid attention to it, and also known what my body normally feels like and listened to that intuition, I don't think that we'd be here at this point, right? We, you know, I'd still probably be going on living my life, but we might find it at a much later stage and a much um, more difficult journey than we found it. And so I truly believe that my diet and lifestyle has led to early detection and like it could have been a lot farther along. We don't ever know that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I hope that this experience only helps me help other people throughout 
you know, beyond this, because unfortunately there are going to be women who experience this and go through this in the future. You know, we, of course, everyone wishes that weren't the case, but hopefully I can have a powerful impact in early awareness and detection and help people throughout the journey as well. How's your mind today? How, how are you feeling? I mean, you're, you're halfway through the treatments. Um, you're on the show. You've always been upbeat. You've always been positive. Are you feeling a little bit better about your situation today than you did maybe six weeks ago, six months ago? Um, you know, how, how are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I do have my moments where, you know, I'm frustrated. I'm emotional, maybe a little bit angry, but to be honest, I am mostly have this attitude of like, okay, this is next. You know, the first four cycles of chemotherapy, because I go weekly, it was kind of like, okay, this is the next step. You know, last week I told my husband before, I was like, is it really Thursday already? And we're doing this again? Like, because it kind of feels like it's this constant, you don't really get this break in between treatment to start feeling well, you know, my, although I do feel my best on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And so I've actually been working a little bit through this entire process, because it helps me mentally, it helps me emotionally, you know, to move through this and know that I can help people through the process too. Um, So in a way, working and doing these things is it's part of the treatment process part, it's part of healing for me. What do you have planned for uh, after the uh, the next six weeks are over? Like, is there a big party that's planned? What's what's going to happen? Yeah, uh, you know, there isn't currently a big party planned, but I keep talking to my husband about having a little getaway vacation and we decide whether we're going to bring the kids or not. You know, I have a 19 month old, so she's kind of hard to travel with at this age. But I'm hoping that there's a there's a vacation in the future just to kind of disconnect for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it goes without saying that you deserve it. I mean, there's, there's no question. You, you don't just deserve it. You need it. Like get the doctor to prescribe it for you for goodness sakes. Just, (laughs) just go pack your bags. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to something like that. And, you know, and it's been a journey for all of us. I have a five, almost six year old, a 19 month old, and then my husband and, you know, it's, it's been hard with the kids. And I almost feel like the hardest part of this journey is, is the kids, right? You still have to be a mom, you still have to get the pack back ready and the lunch ready and, you know, all those types of things. And that's hard, but also one of the most encouraging things, right? Because you still have the kids, even though, our five-year-old kind of understands it. You know, she knows what my port looks like. She has a stuffed animal that has a port in it that she sleeps with every night. Um, so she gets it to that certain extent, but there's so much joy and there's so much so much that they love that is going on in their life that brings joy back to you. And that's really helpful. And a lot of other moms that I, that I've talked with before that have had breast cancer at a young age, you know, say that one of the best things is that they won't remember this, you know, they might have a fleeting memory of it, which in a way is encouraging at the same time. Five. Yeah. You know, you never know how much a a five-year-old is going to retain having the stuffed animal with the port kind of, I would think normalizes, I I, I don't want to use that term normalize, but destigmatizes. It takes a lot of the scariness, um, away from it. So I'm guessing like that's part of your goal here is like, this is, this is what happens. Um, you know, you don't have to freak out because mommy's got this thing right now. It's, it's going to be okay. And look, you know, here's, here's your stuffed animal. And I think part of that too, I think one of the best things that we told our five-year-old is my mom is a breast cancer survivor and she watches my daughter pretty regularly. And I think when we told her, we wanted to make sure we had all the information before we told her so that she could ask questions. And I think the best thing that we told her was that, you know, 
grandma's a breast cancer survivor. Did you know that? And she said, no. And I was like, and look how healthy grandma is. And she plays with you and she can do all the things. Mom's going to be able to do that too. And I think that was the kicker to know that um, I said that mom wasn't sick. We just needed to get it fixed. Mm. Um, and that other piece of my journey too, is that I have been able to keep my hair through chemotherapy and using a cold capping system. So the chemotherapy that I am undergoing does cause alopecia um, or the loss of hair. Um, but I've been going through a cold capping system that actually helps save your hair. And so after six cycles, you know, you would never even know. And part of the reason why we chose that path for us is for our kids so that I wouldn't look sick to them so that we could help normalize life for them. What is a cold capping system for those of us who yeah. aren't familiar? Yeah, absolutely. So during chemotherapy, um, I wear this um, thing on my head, essentially a giant ice pack. Um, it kind of almost looks like you're wearing like this undergarment to a um, like a spaceship, right? Um, so it's essentially the system that moves really, really cold water through the top of your head. Um, and essentially what it does is it um, affects the very tip of the follicles of your hair and constricts the blood vessels so that some more of the chemotherapy is unable to be delivered to that very end of the cell. Um, so I wear it for 30 minutes prior to infusion, during infusion, and also 60 minutes after the chemotherapy infusion. Um, and that has successfully been helpful for me to save my hair. It's not um, allowed or it's not able to be used in all types of chemotherapy and all types of cancer and tumor types. Um, but for my type of treatment, it, I am a very good qualifier for it. And I do have very thick hair. So that is a very helpful thing in this process for us. Okay, so it's a silly question. When we're talking like cold water here, how cold are we talking? Are we talking like one degree above freezing? We are talking about when I take it off my head, there is a layer of snow or ice on the top of my head. Um, so it's very cold. I'm under a blanket like this. Um, and then the other thing is that um, my chemotherapy also can cause peripheral neuropathy, which is the tingling and numbness in your fingers and toes. So I'm also icing my fingers and toes during the chemotherapy. Um, so I have ice on my head ice on my fingers and ice on my toes um, and a giant big blanket to help me get through that about two, two and a half hours that I'm doing that. And it's not fun during it. Honestly, it is a very intense process that's very uncomfortable. Um, however, I've been able to save my hair and knock on wood, I don't have any peripheral neuropathy yet. Um, and peripheral neuropathy can become permanent. Um, so these are all strategies that I'm using to help um, lessen the path moving forward for me. I'm just going to throw this out there that whatever vacation you take at the end of this should be someplace <laughs> warm, tropical, yes. sunny beach. Just saying. Wow. That is what I am imagining, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is, that is intense. That is uh, next level intense, man. You're a warrior. Um, a couple of questions here. I, I want to turn uh, over to uh, the, the diet portion of things. Have you had the opportunity with the team that you've been working with, your team of doctors, to talk to them at all about nutrition and some of the research that you're familiar with and how that might help their patients? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, this is the, actually the cancer center that I worked at um, when I was in traditional practice. I'm now in my own private practice. So I'm very familiar with the medical team, my oncologist, you know, I picked based on, you know, knowing him when working at the cancer center. So I'm very, um, 
I'm very close with the team and they also very much know my approach to nutrition. So I have been able to talk to them about it and I'm very open about being a guinea pig for them, such as the cold capping. This is a very new thing that they're offering at this cancer center. So I pretty much tell all the team like, come on, you can come look at it in action. Um, but they're also very open to my nutrition approaches during chemotherapy and so forth. So I'm using an approach that's not necessarily super well known during treatment and that's fasting before and after chemotherapy. Um, I, and definitely my own guinea pig. There is some research on it, but there also needs to be further studies on it. Um, and my physician is very open to it because they are very open to the fact because they know that I'll do it appropriately and in a smart way. So that is something. Um, and then also um, there are two dietitians at the cancer center that I work at. And one of them I actually hired myself and when I worked there. So I'm very, um, I have a dietitian that follows me. And it's one of those things is that um, I'm very open to the fact that everybody has different ideas. And so um, I take what they recommend. And I also share with what's been working well for me so that hopefully it can be um, helpful as they go moving forward with working with patients too. I'm curious about the the fasting approach here. What What is the theory behind that? And what is the research showing? Absolutely. So the research is still in a little bit earlier, the studies, um, we do need more clinical data. And there are some contraindications of what, um, when someone should not fast prior to chemotherapy. However, the research varies a little bit in terms of what the protocol would look like, depending also on the treatment that that person is receiving. So I re I receive weekly chemotherapy. So when I actually thought about doing fasting for myself, I thought, oof, weekly fasting is a little bit too much from that standpoint, because we also want to make sure that the patient is nourished enough, doesn't lose too much weight, isn't risking malnutrition or sarcopenia, which is like the loss, involuntary loss of skeletal muscle um, and those types of things. And so really what it looks like for me is I'm fasting a period of time for a certain number of hours prior to chemotherapy infusion. And then also I finish that fast 24 hours after chemotherapy infusion. Um, so there is um, each week, there's about two days or so that I'm only drinking water. Um, and really the theory behind it and what the research is showing is that it can help protect the healthy cells. The way that I describe it is that our healthy cells are actually really good in times of famine, right? During times of starvation. So when we're not consuming calories, our bodies kind of go and these healthy cells go into this protection mode. Cancer cells, they don't have this protection mode. They have one mission and one mission only is to grow and divide and be as big as possible. Okay, so if we're fasting, and then we get chemotherapy, your healthy cells are somewhat protected. And then it, it's also been shown that the cancer cells are going to uptake the chemotherapy more efficiently and be more effective against um, the cancer cells. Um, and research is showing um, promising results in improved quality of life and reduced fatigue, and also reduced side effects after chemotherapy during this fast with, in, with implementing this fasting phase. Phase. But again, um, everyone does their chemotherapy in different routines. So mine is weekly. Some people experience it every two weeks, every three weeks, some even every month. Um, and so that really needs to take into consideration. And I have modified my own fasting as a result to make it more sustainable because it, there was one cycle where I lost about two pounds in the one week. And I thought, ooh, I have nine cycles left. This is not um, sustainable for me to lose this amount of weight in this period of time. So it has to be a constant um, check-in with your medical team and hopefully an oncology dietitian on your team as well to help you bridge what's important and what works for that individual. But I've seen really good results, but to be honest, I haven't tried a cycle without it. So I don't really know exactly what the control would be. Uh, but I have very min minor nausea. I have 
really good energy for the most part throughout treatment here. Um, and I would say that I think it's part of aiding in how well I'm doing with the cold capping and, um, and the icing my fingers and toes and fasting. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that I'm doing to try to help myself through this process. And I think it's really helping. At least if it's a placebo effect, I will take it. <laughs> Do you uh, try to eat, eat things that are a little bit more calorically dense knowing that the fasting is coming or are you still eating your regular diet? Absolutely. I do try to increase my caloric load before and after the fasting because the biggest goal throughout the course of chemotherapy for pretty much any patient is actually to maintain weight. Um, whether that patient is clinically overweight or obese or the patient is at a normal healthy weight, um, ma weight maintenance is the primary goal throughout the course of chemotherapy. So I watch that very closely for myself and with my medical team. And that does require me to eat a little bit more calories before and a little bit more calories after the fast. Um, but I'm only plus or minus one or two pounds since the start of chemotherapy after six cycles. And that's a really good place to be um, for myself. All right. And and really quickly here, let's talk about cancer risk, eating that standard uh, Western diet, high fat, lots of calories, lots of highly processed foods. And then, you know, cancer risk for the, again, we're going to say the average person, because as we've learned here today, you know, there's no such thing as a, you know, sure thing. So the risk on the standard diet versus the risk eating a really healthy, clean, primarily, if not 100% whole food plant-based diet. Absolutely. I mean, the risk of, you know, the average person walking down the street of developing breast cancer for a woman is one in eight. Um, and that is without a known genetic mutation, right? So I do have a known genetic mutation. So, um, but when it comes to when we see a standard American diet to a whole food plant based, and let's even just say like plant predominant, we see the best reduction in cancer risk between the standard American diet and a whole food plant based vegan diet. Um, we see there's also imp improvements in risk reduction when it comes to a vegetarian diet. Um, and so anytime we can move towards a more plant forward, whole food plant based forward approach, we see a reduction in breast cancer and cancer risk itself. Um, and that's really there's so many factors that play a role in why that can help reduce the risk of cancer, um, starting with the microbiome, IGF one, which is insulin like growth factor, which is actually reduced um, in consuming a whole food plant based diet. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. So and reduction in inflammation, right? It's not even just cancer. It's about overall chronic disease that we can definitely see a drastic reduction in when we follow a whole food plant based diet. And what are some of your favorite foods? I was interviewing Dr. Christy Funk uh, this month as part of our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series, and she's really big on the Indian gooseberry and on strawberries. What are your really big must-have foods? cruciferous vegetables. Um, so cruciferous vegetables are anything that's broccoli, kale, cauliflower, cabbage, these vegetables that fall into this cruciferous or like cross formation growing vegetables. Um, and the biggest reason that I'm a big advocate for them is truly because of the glucosinolase and sulforaphane, which are these phytonutrients that fall under these um, these vegetables that have some of the best cancer protective qualities. Um, so I personally aim to always have cruciferous vegetables in my day, if not just one serving, multiple servings. Um, and I'm also finding during chemotherapy, we tend to have uh, some, a lot of people tend to have like food aversions or even cravings. And I find that I just want all the roasted vegetables. And lately it's been a lot of broccoli and cauliflower for me. Um, and if I were talking to 
an individual about, you know, what is one food, right? Because we know it's not one food that can reduce the risk of cancer overall. It is definitely the overall dietary pattern that is the most important. So it's really hard to pick one food, but if I were to pick one, it would be cruciferous vegetables and then take that up a notch to like broccoli sprouts where we have like 100 times more sulforaphane in the broccoli sprouts than we do in mature broccoli. How do you roast your broccoli? Uh, I, I'll tell you, I'm a I'm a really simple kind of dude. Like I will uh, steam it just a little bit so it's it gets a little bit soft, and then I'll roast it. For me, you know, and and I'll do that sometimes even without any kind of seasoning. I just think that the roasted broccoli flavor alone is super 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 tasty. I would love to know what your roasted broccoli recipe is. Honestly, like I think I'm going to disappoint you, Chuck, because I prefer steamed broccoli over roasted. And the reason for I like the flavor of the roasted broccoli, but I really struggle with the fact that roasted broccoli tends to like burn on the floret so much if you don't have it like coated in oil. And we do, you know, really recommend trying to reduce our overall oil consumption or at least keep it low. Um, I think there are some great strategies that other people have to help reduce some of that burning and that need for um, oil in order to roast. But I'm more of a steamed broccoli like yesterday um, for lunch I had um, tofu and steamed broccoli and I had some noodles that went with it with a little bit of a sauce and that seems to be my go-to right now so I I guess I'm kind of disappointing you with the best roasted broccoli recipe because I don't really have one cauliflower roasted is mine oh okay okay well now we'll get to that but there's no disappointment look I mean it's your broccoli you eat it however Mm -hmm. the heck you want it is it is Allison's broccoli who am I to tell you how to eat your broccoli come on that's just Silly talk. Uh, (laughs) All right. But the roasted cauliflower, you just said that that's your jam. All right. So give me, give me the secret sauce here for roasting cauliflower. Um, Yeah. So I cut it into those smaller sizes. um, And then I use a, um, a blend seasoning that has salt, a little bit of salt, black pepper and garlic that I sprinkle on the roasted broccoli and I put roasted at 425 degrees on a parchment paper. So the parchment paper helps prevent that sticking um, and also still allows some of that caramelization to happen. And depending on the size of the cauliflower, it's usually in there for about 20 to 25 minutes with about a stir in between. To me that um, the, the black pepper, and I think it's the garlic that really does it for me that I like on this roasted cauliflower and um, the 425 degrees degrees I find to be the perfect amount for it. There you go. All right. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try that. I'm going to let yeah. you know how it goes. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I really uh, roasted vegetables are just the greatest thing since sliced bread and it surpasses sliced bread easily in my opinion. <laughs> um, totally. y- yeah. So uh, last question for you. Um, what is, what is your prognosis as it stands right now? What if the doctors told you? Yeah, so um, thankfully, my breast cancer is very curative intent um, throughout the um, so if um, by going through this whole process, I'll reduce my risk of recurrence to about five and a half percent. If I proceed with endocrine therapy, which would be like tamoxifen for me, then I can reduce it down to another three and a half percent. So I have a very curative um, breast cancer that we caught very early. Um, So like I've been telling a lot of people, you know, I do believe that I'm going to be well at the end of this. I do consider myself pretty well, even, even throughout this. Um, but it's just a little bit of icky to get there. I like that. Just a little bit of icky, just a little, a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's palatable. We can do it. It's just, just a little icky. Uh, I would love Allison to, uh, stay in touch with you and, uh, be able to, to keep our, um, 
followers or, or the exam room is up to date with uh, how it is that you're doing. I think that there's going to be a lot of people invested in your story now and sending you all kinds of good vibes and well wishes as you continue down your road to recovery. So um, if you're up for it, I'd love to check in with you from time to time just so we can give a, give the roomies an update. Absolutely. I'd love that. And, you know, all of the support, you know, I could say for certain that me and my family wouldn't be in this place where we are today if it weren't for the support, helpful thoughts, prayers, everything throughout this entire process. And it, it takes a village. It's not just me and my husband. It, it, there's so many people around us. And um, even, and I also believe that the, you know, the survivors that came before me, they, they were key to a part of this for me because they helped me, me be aware. They helped me pay attention. And I hope that I can help people be aware and be attentive pay attention as well. Um, and we'll take all those happy thoughts, vibes, prayers, whatever it is for anybody. Um, we'll take it because, um, it's definitely making a difference for us. Plenty of happy thoughts from me to you, your entire family for a swift recovery. I think that this is, um, been a really enlightening 45 minutes and I thank you so much for your time and, um, continued success and, and continued path back to health. And, you know, thank you for being, such a, a brave warrior in all of this you know you are truly a remarkable person so it's been really a privilege to be able to have this time with you oh, it's been a privilege to be here thanks so much Jack. i appreciate it the barnard medical center is powering this episode of the exam room podcast their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. I want to thank Allison for so bravely sharing her story with us and absolutely wish her nothing but the very best for a healthier future. We definitely look forward to hearing more from her as her journey progresses, all pulling for her. And I'll tell you the thing that I really like about Allison is her spark and her enthusiasm, even though this is probably one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult challenge she will ever face in her entire lifetime. But somehow she is headstrong and she has lots of support. And as I said in the interview, I cannot think of anyone who is better suited to be in this fight. You know, look, we talk about reducing the risk, right? Reducing. There are no guarantees ever. And while Allison finds herself battling cancer, we also know that this healthy diet and lifestyle are helping her thrive during treatment. You heard her talk about that. Just think about all of the women who are also fighting right now. But maybe they're not aware of the things that Allison was talking about, the steps that she is taking. Maybe they're not aware of the power that comes with clean eating, of living a healthy lifestyle, and the benefits that they can provide. They are living a completely different experience than what Allison is. And her way seems to be much kinder to her body. And it's helping her through. It's helping her to see that light at the end of the tunnel. 
she still has that sparkle in her eye. She's got a lot of energy in her tank. And yes, she even still has hair on the top of her head. So let's move on and keep raising our health IQs. Let's continue our discussion about risk and turn to genetics. Are they the biggest factor? A lot of us think so, but that's not necessarily the case. In fact, just 13% of women who have breast cancer also have a close relative that's been diagnosed with that same disease. It turns out that the power of prevention, it is in your hands. And what we're going to do right now is raise your health IQ to fill those hands up with as much power as possible. And our power master today is Dr. Christy Funk, renowned breast cancer surgeon. She is here with the latest research on cancer, with studies showing the things that you can do starting today that can make all the difference for your health. The time to put the power in your hands is right now. Dr. Christy Funk, welcome back to the exam room. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me. And let's show off my shirt. E-Plants Crush Cancer. This is the new shirt line coming to you from letsbebreastcancer.org. And they're all available for purchase. And, um, oh, PCRM, I don't know what company exactly they use, but it's the comfiest cotton. Like, these are awesome shirts. I'm kind of obsessed. Did you have a career uh, working on QVC, perhaps, before you went (laughs) into medicine? I did not. I did not. (laughs) But I will consider one if, you know, breast cancer ever ends. You're a natural at it. You're an absolute natural. I got to go load up on those t-shirts now and get one of the buff ones for my wife too. That's, that's amazing. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's switch gears though. I mean, we, we have a lot of important stuff to talk about. Not that t-shirts aren't important, but t-shirts aren't necessarily going to save a life, but the information today that you are going to talk about, uh, very well may. So let's talk about breast cancer. I know that you put together, um, some, a slide or slides that have a lot of fantastic information in there. We're talking about risk factors in there. And we did a lot with food during the live q and I'm sure that we're going to have some leftovers from that. But, you know, I think you're also going to talk about just straight up how the standard American diet, that high fat, high calorie diet, how that can affect a woman's risk of developing breast cancer as well. And when you have the majority of people eating that standard American diet, there's a lot of people, Dr. Funk, who need to hear what it is that you're saying today. Absolutely. So I hope it reaches their ears and affects what they put in their mouths. All right. So as we mentioned, we've got the Let's Be Breast Cancer dot org campaign live and well. And we're doing something special this year. I invite you to sign up. All you have to do is put in your name and email and boom, you will be granted access to our live Zooms. They're also going to interface on Instagram, YouTube and Facebook every Thursday at 5 p.m. Um, Pacific time and 8 p.m. Eastern time. I'm going live with a different, amazing person every week. The first week of October, Neil Barnard. Second week, we've got an amazing chef. It's uh, Evelise Capo. Then we're doing, oh, mocktails with uh, Joe. What's Joe's last name? Gonzalez. Yes, Joe Gonzalez. He's a dietitian. And then the final week, we're having an inspirational uh, survivorship story moment with Donna Green Goodman and Karen and Daryl Crisp. So don't miss it. It's going to be great. And also when you sign up, 
Uh, you get a free e-cookbook. You get a chance at cool giveaways, including free admission to my virtual summit, uh, weekly newsletters, and just other live online events. So take the challenge. And I want to show you how relevant the challenge is. So we've got our icons here. Eat a whole food plant-based diet. Exercise regularly. Minimize or eliminate alcohol. And maintain a healthy weight. We're going to dive into those factors in scientific research-backed detail throughout this uh, interview and the next one. But I want to show you how current and relevant those exact same four factors are. Those four and nothing more go into the Healthy Lifestyle Index. And this particular study, hot off the press, April 2022, followed 132,000 plus postmenopausal women ages 50 to 79 years old for just over 15 years average. And what they found is that those with a higher healthy lifestyle index, so obviously eating better and moving more, had 20% less ductal carcinoma in situ, stage zero breast cancer, than those with a poor lifestyle index. And then furthermore, if you also had a strong family history, those women with a healthy lifestyle index uh, had 34% less breast cancer than those who had a poor lifestyle. So these habits are extremely protective against breast cancer. You might be wondering what is DCIS. In situ means that these are cancer cells, but they're stuck inside the milk tubes of the breast and therefore can never access lymphatics or bloodstream and spread. It is the most treatable, most curable, no chemo needed kind of cancer, and yet it still is cancer. And if left in a breast undiagnosed or untreated, about a third of it will eventually break that duct wall. The breaking of the wall is termed invasion. So when you're told or you hear a friend has invasive breast cancer, it does not mean it invaded lymph nodes or lung or liver or bone, although it now has the potential access to lymphatics and bloodstream and may have spread. So just a little bit on the breast cancer anatomy stuff, but I don't dive into the stat, the breast cancer weeds with you during uh, these talks. I do find that people want to know a lot about how to maximally reduce risk and the chances of ever getting a breast cancer. But until you have breast cancer, like right there in your breast and you have to figure out what to do about it, like a detailed discussion of what it is and all the ways we treat and cure it is not interesting. Um, it's my life's work. Thanks for insulting me. I know you didn't. I just insulted myself. Okay, here we go. I want to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at women's diseases, you are 26 times more likely to develop cardiovascular disease in your lifetime and seven times more likely to die from heart disease just this year than you are likely to get or die from breast cancer. Nonetheless, so we realize that heart disease is our biggest threat amongst the cancers certainly breast cancer is our biggest threat. So behind skin, which includes those like completely treatable basal cells, <laughs> breast cancer is the number one cancer that women get. It accounts for 30% of all cancers diagnosed in women year after year. And we get a lot more breasts than we do lung and colon. But as you'll see over here, we're pretty good at treating and curing breast cancer, but not great. So over 287,000 women will get invasive breast cancer this year, and about 42,000 will die from it, as opposed to lung cancer, where more than half of the women who get it die from it eventually, and almost a third of the women who get colon cancer um, eventually die from it. Okay, so some stats just to get a lay of the landscape here. 
There are 3.8 million breast cancer survivors or thrivers in the U.S. right now, which is a testament to earlier detection and better treatments. But in my opinion, not a good testament to understanding maximizing risk because maybe we could cut that number down by at least half by espousing healthy diet and lifestyle behaviors. And throughout this time together and next time, I hope I impress upon you the facts behind why that powerful stat of slashing breast cancer incidence in half or more is completely doable. Hey, men, you have breasts. Did you know that? <laughs> so men, including Chuck, have breasts. Not a lot. It's a little breast bud centered behind the nipple. And it formed there in utero because the first six weeks in utero, guess what? We were all the greater sex. We were all tiny little fetus girls. And then mm. testosterone came out and ruined it all for you boys. <laughs> um, however, it came out after the breast bud developed, as did the nipple. And so that's why those things stick around and out throughout your life and can indeed get breast cancer. So this year, about 2,700 men will be diagnosed with breast cancer and 530 are going to die from it. The death rate from breast cancer has gone down about 1% per year since 2013, again, because of earlier diagnosis and better treatment. So much so that the five-year survival rate for node negative cancer, so this is when the cancer is just stuck in the breast and as far as we know, it's in uh, it's nowhere else, not in the nodes or out there in the lung or liver. The five-year survival is 99%. This often has my patients go, so I die year six. <laughs> um, no, you don't. The whole point that we doctors, uh, the whole point behind using these five-year survival statistics is because they most accurately reflect the treatments that you're about to receive for your cancer. If I give you 30-year survival stats, mm, well, those women diagnosed 30 years ago don't have as high a survival as you will have because we've developed a ton of medications in the last three decades and your cancer will probably be treated with some of those newer medications. So it's really like terrifying to give you those stats, right? Because it's like, you know, in 1800, your chance of getting, <laughs> so, right. right? So this five year is a more relevant to you stat. And so don't panic that it, we secretly know you're going to die year six and just don't want to tell you the six year survival rate. <laughs> okay. 95% of breast cancer happens in women who are over 40. Let that one sink in a little bit because um, I always get asked, gee, you know, it feels like breast cancer is such an epidemic these days and everybody's getting younger and younger, aren't they? And I kind of like, I'm a yes person. So I kind of want to go like, yeah, but actually no. Mm. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I know three facts. Okay. So the opposite of this fact is that only 5% of all breast cancer, and these are 2022 stats, um, occurs in women who are under 40. Not to minimize that if you're under 40 with breast cancer, you're in that 5% and that can be a difficult time to say the least. But the second fact I know is that the median age, so half of breast cancer occurs at or after 62 years old and half of breast cancer occurs before 62 years old. So the median age, is older, not younger. And yes, you're right in the sense that incidence has been on a very slow rise since 2004. Uh, and since 2012, it's reaching a 0.3% per year increase. So honestly, it's nothing that your computer of a brain would recognize as a true increase. But for women under 50, it's been rock stable since 1985. So 
It's uh, it's yeah, it's back there with headbands and spandex. It hasn't changed <laughs> and I still look good in a headband. So anyway, the point is breast cancer is not increasing at a rate in younger people such that you would ever notice. However, this has been completely increasing since the 1990s. And that is the acceptance, not even then, I don't know why I said that, from like, I would say 2010 and beyond. Now, all of a sudden, it is no longer taboo to have your favorite hosts on talk show television boldly come forward with their own cancer journeys and stories. They're normalizing the conversation around things like gene mutations, and they're allowing people like me airtime to talk about it and to educate. So it seems more prevalent. And you know, the other thing is, if think about when you joined Facebook, what year was it? I know for a fact, because I was sitting on the couch pregnant, uh, it was 2000, the very uh, beginning of 2009, when I joined Facebook. Man, that it was not- late too. I'm a late joiner. Yeah. I think I got on there like 2001, 2002, something like that. What? You're like the third person ever on it. Anyway, that's cool. That's cool. (laughs) You're ahead of the curve. Um, Yeah, no, it was 2008 actually. Now I remember, but anyway, it doesn't matter that I'm (laughs) so far behind you. I'm still ahead of the curve. When people answer this question for themselves, it will be after that. And so the point is that a mere 15 years ago, you never ever knew that your cousin's friend's daughter at 22 years old had breast cancer. So this idea that it's so much more prevalent and happening younger is partly just because you have more information access that you never had before. Okay, moving on. I'm gonna talk about some risk factors that you cannot change, not to freak you out, but to educate you and incentivize you to take more control over the things over which you have control. Okay, so the first thing you can't change and who would want to is being female. So you may know that one in eight women gets breast cancer. Um, If this were 1970, it would have been one in 11. So look how far we've come (laughs) in 50 years. We've gone from one in 11 to one in eight women gets breast cancer. Men, we mentioned already that you do get breast cancer, but it's a rate at one in 1.3 in 100,000. It's far cry from one in eight. So about 12.8% of women will be diagnosed with invasive breast cancer in their lifetime and one in 39 or 3% of all women will die from breast cancer in the US. However, that 12.8% risk isn't like every morning when you wake up, right? Because we all have it by like Hanukkah or Christmas. Basically, that number is pulled out across every decade of life and has its peak moments. So let me show this to you. If your current age is 20, your risk of getting breast cancer in the next 10 years, so between 20 and 30, is one in 1,479 20-somethings. You see, that's no one in eight. But if you go on and on, let's just do it. Okay, because you're all thinking, wait, where's my age? Okay, so 20 to 30 is one in 1,479. 30 to 40 years old, one in 209 30-somethings. 40 to 50 years old, one in 65. 50 to 60 years old, one in 42. 60 to 70 years old, one in 28. 70 to 80 years old, ding, ding, ding. This is the highest risk decade in which to get breast cancer. It's one in 25. 80 to 90 years old, one in 33. And 90 to 100 is never in any of these tables because they don't expect anyone to be a centenarian. And I object. I think we should all go plant-based and all outlive these tables and be like, hey, where's my decade? 
<laughs> all right, so here's what I want to say. When you add up all of these one ins, that's where you land with a lifetime tally risk of one in eight, which equals 12.8%. All right, so at the risk of jumping ahead here, Dr. Funk, what is going on in the body between the ages of 50 to uh, 80 where that risk really jumps up? And then really, I mean, you, you just said one in 25 for uh, the 70s. I mean, what's going on there that causes those numbers to climb like that, the risk to climb. Really, you've just lived long enough now that the cumulative damage of your DNA mutations is getting outpaced um, by the acceleration of that damage, right? So when you're younger, you have more cellular immunity, more defenses against mutation, and you have less cumulative exposure to like kind of an easier one for people to understand is UV damage to the skin. So you get melanoma, right? You don't have that much exposure to the sun when you're 10 years old or even 30 as compared to 80, where you then end up with that cigarette paper skin and you just knock into something and your grandma has that huge bruise on her arm or cuts her. Like (laughs) things change as you age, your cells are aging, your uh, telomeres are getting shorter and your ability to rejuvenate and repair on a cellular level is uh, getting less functional. So your cancer risk is going up. Gotcha. All right. Asked and answered. Yes. Family history. Why are we doctors so interested in family history? Well, let's answer this question. What percentage of women with breast cancer have at least one first degree relative with breast cancer? Is it 13, 45, so almost half of you, 61%, 81%, like basically everybody because it runs in the family? No. Overall, only 13% of women diagnosed with breast cancer have a single first degree relative with it, and about 20% have any relative at all. So it means 80 to 90, um, 80, 80 to 87% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have a single person on either side of the family tree. So it's not really about genetics unless it's about genetics. So what percentage of women diagnosed with breast cancer actually do have an inherited genetic mutation such as BRCA or CHECK2 or PALB2 that they got from mom and dad. 5 to 10%, 30 to 40, 60 to 70, 80 to 90. So really, I probably should have done the slides the other way because if you were paying attention, you should know that most people with cancer don't have a family history of it. And these genes are very unforgiving. And when they exist, you usually see cancer generation after generation after generation devastated by these gene mutations. Thankfully, it's only 5 to 10% of all women diagnosed with breast cancer who can blame it on their genes. And what what is that risk, really? It can be crazy high, to be honest. So, for example, BRCA gene mutations, if you carry a BRCA1 mutation, your risk of getting breast cancer is up to 87% lifetime. Like, it's almost a question of just if not now, then when. Um, in that same time frame, by age 70, the overall risk is only 8% in the normal population. Similarly, the ovarian cancer risk, which is a highly fatal cancer to get, is 44% up to age 70 versus population less than 1%. So we get really serious when you do have a gene mutation. And I'd like for you to consider whether or not it's worth testing for one. So here are your big red flags. These are the criterion that insurance recognizes and generally covers because if you have any of these bullet points that I'll talk through, you do have a 10% or higher risk of having a gene mutation and it would behoove you to find out. 
Some people are fearful of it. They just don't want to know the information. They do the head in the sand thing um, or the fingers in the ears thing. And they and or they're worried about genetic discrimination in the workplace with insurance. Um, I will say there's laws in place, both state and federal, that protect you against such discrimination. But we all know that laws can be changed, so I can understand that um, concern. However, there would be such an outcry. <laughs> I don't see genetic discrimination uh, laws going away, um, but we do know that laws change. So here are the red flags for a possible gene mutation. Remember, you're half your dad's DNA. I even hear doctors say, well, that doesn't matter. That was your dad's side. What? You're half your dad. So both sides of the family matter, um, at least the immediate and second degree relatives, but even third degree. If they're smattered in with first and second, then third degree matters. So think about all the relatives you've ever heard of. And here we go. If you have two relatives with breast cancer prior to age 50, or there's an ovarian cancer at any age, two of them, you should test. If you're Ashkenazi, uh, then you get the Jewish special. You only need one relative having had breast cancer prior to age 50 or ovarian at any age. Why is that? Because everybody running around has a one in 500-ish chance of having a BRCA gene mutation just by being of Ashkenazi Eastern European descent. It is one in 40. So that's why we just need one relative plus the Ashkenazi. Next up, stuff that happened to you. So if you yourself had breast cancer prior to menopause, a triple negative subtype under age 60, two primaries, which does not mean a cancer that then recurred, but two totally separate breast cancers happening. If there are any men in the family tree with direct bloodline to you who have had breast cancer, a known genetic mutation carrier, again, direct bloodline to you. Pancreatic cancer is fairly rare. So if you've got that plus an ovarian breast in the same side of the family, that is worth testing about. And then finally, just a whole lot of cancer going on, specifically these breast, ovarian, pancreatic, prostate, colorectal, gastric, that stomach, uterine, and melanoma. So uh, like I said, you really want to consider testing if you fall onto this list. And if you don't uh, fall on the list, but you just really are interested in your own genetics, there are um, really affordable tests now. So once Myriad lost its patents, there's a bunch of testing companies. They're all reputable, um, Quest, Ambry, and Vitae and color, you can get tested and um, it will go through insurance, but it, when it gets denied, it's $249 for the full battery of every gene that we possibly test for these days. So if you wanna consider that, you can. We have an online store, it's called Pink Lotus Elements and we have the color kit there. You can sign up for that and it'll get mailed to your house and then you spit in a tube and send it back. And then you can call yourself Wonder Woman, like literally, you'll be anonymous. So you can have your gene results and never worry about discrimination if that's a big fear of yours. Okay, so wait a minute. If I can't blame mom and dad, what can I blame? Well, look at these stats. So Japanese immigrants in Los Angeles and Hawaii after 1982, and then Chinese in Hawaii after 1992, developed breast cancer at rates over 100% higher than Japanese and Chinese still in the homeland, 100% higher. Mm. And at the same time, check this stat out. The change in mortality between the 1990 and 2000 
in the U.S., the death from breast cancer dropped 15%, and in that same decade, it skyrocketed 55% in Japan. So what exactly was happening? You have to realize, look, you don't get breast cancer the way you catch a cold or COVID. You might be diagnosed on a Tuesday, but that sinister little thing was busy proliferating and dividing for hundreds of Tuesdays before you finally found out about it. Um, not to freak you out, but to, to educate you, a sugar cube worth of cancer, a one centimeter cancer, and the average diagnosed size in the U.S. is 2.2 centimeters. A one centimeter cancer spews 3.2 million cells into the bloodstream every single day, every 24 hours. So it is an intact immune system that seeks out and destroys those rogue cells before they can land somewhere and then recruit all the things they need to become one cell, two cells, four cells, et cetera. But my point is you have to look back then at the seventies and eighties and what was going on a good decade or two prior to this massive bump in mortality to answer the question, because it isn't that like, you know, just some, something happened uh, like, like they caught a cold, right? Beginning in the 1970s, the growing economics and affluence of Japan, Singapore, urban areas of China sparked all of these westernized changes in their lifestyle. So Asians started to chase our culture, and as a result, they caught our cancer. So let's talk about our culture, the American style. Instead of laboring in the field all day or in the home, tending to children, preparing fresh meals, women around the world, beginning in the 70s, more so than any decade prior, really started to enter the workforce in droves, leading sedentary lives, stressful lives that expanded their waistlines. They delayed childbearing until later years, which is a risk factor, uh, if they had kids at all, which is called nulliparous, the lack of children, and that's a risk factor. Not breastfeeding, another risk factor. Eating leftover pizza for lunch and then sending off emails ASAP that they dash home, maybe bumper bumpering it <laughs> to home like I would. I ran my back now, but I used to drive for 20 years and uh, traffic is aggravating, stressing me out evermore. And uh, basically I'm just in time to plop takeout on the table, pour a glass of wine, plop on the couch and catch your favorite Netflix binge before bed. Right. Sound a little familiar. Is it faster for you to bike home than sit in that traffic in your car? Just out of curiosity. No, I'm, well, it, I may be dead if I did that because there was, there were no good bike lanes, but I moved the office and now I bike every day. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So, all right. Now, so of all these controllable, changeable risk factors that are proven in the science to affect breast cancer, we're talking diet and nutrition, alcohol, exercise, obesity, hormone replacement therapy, environmental toxicities, we're talking endocrine disruptors, and emotional stress. There is one thing that, in my heavily researched opinion, is more important than any other. And that's partly because you do it three to six times a day you eat. Now, the key to using food to protect yourself from breast cancer is that I want you to understand you unleash weapons for better or worse every time you chew and swallow that hold the power to alter the following factors inside of you. Depending on what you chew and swallow, you alter estrogen levels, growth factors, and the big daddy of them all is called IGF-1. We're going to get into that. Blood vessel formation, angio, blood vessel, gen. Genesis, birth, 
The birth of new blood flow to those little sinister cancer cells is an absolute requirement for every subtype of cancer in our bodies if it aspires to exist beyond the size of a tip of a ballpoint pen, angiogenesis. Free radical formation, which sets off immune system dysfunction if there's too much of it, inflammation, cell damage, and finally we arrive at it, DNA mutations that then propagate and form a cancer. Chuck, you're going to love this next slide. I actually made it for you because you loved this analogy I made one time. Can't remember which year it was. And now I thought I'd just bring it to visual life. I'm honored. Imagine that that little cancer cell is sitting in a bathtub. Yes. Do you remember? Yes. Like, the oh my gosh. Duck, like, yes. Yes. Okay. So basically what you chew and swallow becomes the fluids and cells that bathe and support and fuel cancer or seeks to destroy it. So imagine that you're just a normal little rubber ducky, happy as can be aka a human cell happily humming along when unexpectedly in a matter of days what was normal becomes mutated by factors like the sun's uv rays we're talking about melanoma cigarette smoke a little lung cell or carcinogenic foods a little breast cell now this mutated cell transforms into a cancer seed whether or not that seed takes root and blooms into a full-grown cancer capable of destroying your life depends on the bathtub water, the micro environment, the soil in which that cancer seed either flourishes or fails. So I told you that it was in 1974, the NIH funded that study that showed that we spew out 3.2 million cells into the bloodstream every 24 hours from a sugar cube sized cancer. So why, oh, why, and how, oh, how are we not all basically stage four at the moment of diagnosis with all those cells showering out there every 24 hours? It turns out that in the China study, Dr. Campbell observed that nutrition is infinitely more important in controlling cancer growth, meaning the bathtub, water, than the dose of the initiating carcinogen, meaning the cancer maker. So when you eat strategically in an anti-angiogenic, anti-estrogenic, anti-inflammatory way, you take away all the bubbles. You take away the lavender salts, the little loofah pad, and now that cancer says, oh, well, it's just plain water. I guess I'll die now. Poof, apoptosis. So I want you to make sure that bathtub water is boring. And to do that, I want you to understand oxidative stress. So this is not going to become like a huge biochemical lesson, but I do want you to get that there is this battlefield inside us all day long, and it's oxidative stress. Even in plant-based eaters, there's a level of it. Okay, so free radicals are reactive oxygen molecules, and they are wild inside of you. Why? Because they need an electron to make themselves stable and happy. And so they steal it from any cell they can next to them, which then sets that cell off into being unhappy, and it steals from its neighbor, and so on and so on, which is a very inflammatory oxidizing state. So what or what can stop all the oxidative madness? It's the kind, gentle antioxidant. So this life-giving molecule, the antioxidant, says to the oxidant, hey, dude, here, take my electron. 
I'm super stable even without it. And it calms down the reactive madness. So free radicals, you know, they're actually good in certain quantities. They help us breathe. So yay. Uh, they combat infection and they can actually kill the cancer cells that they help cause in the first place, which is ironic, but I'll take it. So if more bad, hangs around, then there is good to stop it, then oxidative stress results. And when this imbalance persists day after day, year after year, your body's cells and DNA just get too beat up and sickness results. So basically, whichever organs get hit by all those free radicals the most become the disease that you get. So if it's your blood vessels, hello, heart disease. If it's your muscles, you're chronically fatigued or have fibromyalgia. If it's your intestines, you have irritable bowel and leaky gut or colon cancer. If it's your brain, I forgot what happens. Oh, dementia. Um, or if it's your breast, right? Breast cancer. By the way, where are all those happy life-giving antioxidant molecules coming from? Plants on average carry 64 times the antioxidant power of meat, fish, eggs, and dairy. Let that sink in. So that means gram per gram in order to ingest the antioxidant content in one cup of blueberries seen here, which has 57 calories and 0.3 grams of fat, you would need to eat 27.5 slices of cheese pizza. That has 7,590 calories and 323 grams of fat. Can I just jump in here and say like how much this goes to dispel this myth that's been floating around? I've seen it so much recently online that uh, plant foods contain zero nutrients and it's impossible for the body to absorb anything beneficial from them. And the only way that you're possibly going to get anything of benefit through food is if it is derived from an animal. What you have just shown Dr. Funk is not only is that false, but that plant foods in this particular instance are 64 times more powerful. Absolutely. They are. Yeah. The, you know, the media industry is no stranger to the truth. They know it before the vast majority of Americans know it. And they're already planning for your blindfolds to get removed. And once they are, do you know what they already have up their sleeve? Plant infused meat. Once you figure out, America, that plants is where it's at, let's just remind yourself, eat plants, crush cancer. Um, once you figure that out on a scale that hits their bottom line, aka profit margin, oh, guess what? Plants are going to be injected into the meat, and then you're going to have a whole new uh, kind of false narrative inside your head that says, oh, okay, so now the meat's healthy. They figured out what was wrong with it and they fixed it. Mm -hmm. It's masterful. What can I say? <laughs> um, I have a favorite study and I'll say this, unfortunately, about every study I talk about usually because <laughs> I have so many. But these are the ones, the ones that I, when I say this is my favorite or one of them, it's because it, it's so near and dear to my heart. It's, it's one of the few studies that tipped the scales for me. Like, I can't take it anymore. The whole family's going vegan. Um, so... This was one of those studies. Oh, and I have a funny story about this. Okay, so when I was writing my book, Breast, the Owner's Manual, uh, every single fact in there, I back with research studies. There isn't a single fact that isn't referenced. So it's not really my opinion as much as it is just my a compilation of all these facts that I learned. So 
when I was writing the book, I was sitting in the doctor's lounge waiting to get called for my operation. And I am not even exaggerating when I say I am reading, studying this study when uh, we'll call him John, this anesthesiologist sits across the table from me. And John has three pancakes, uh, three foil wrapped uh, pats of butter, four strips of bacon on his plate. And I'm like, don't be that girl. Don't be that girl. Don't say anything. Just read your study. Don't say anything. And then I'm like, <gasps> and I put down the laptop and I'm like, John, let me tell you about this study that I'm reading. Okay. So let me tell you about the study I was reading. This is about the oxidative stress battle inside your body. And I want to make it super relevant to you. Okay. So they took these 24 hyperlipidemic men and women. So high cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and they fed them sad the standard American diet that Chuck, you were asking me to address. Mm -hmm. So we've got sad for breakfast, John. We have pancakes and bacon. We have steak and eggs. We feed it to these people. We, I'm taking myself out of it. They, they, they did this, <laughs> had nothing to do with it. And then they checked their blood LDL cholesterol levels hourly after that sad meal. This is a measure of oxidative stress inside your body. And it went up, up, up till 180 minutes later, three hours later, it's time for lunch, hamburger and fries. Let's measure it up, up, up. And now it's dinner time. And this person is going to bed with fewer antioxidants than when they woke up. Hence that, how many decades do you think your body's going to take the hammering of oxidative stress before it just says, I'm out, done. Thanks for the ride. All right. Now here's the magic. Same people next day same sad meal, one change, a cup of strawberries. Now we have the pancakes and bakery and a cup of strawberries. And the LDL cholesterol goes down below baseline. Here's lunch, same hamburger and fries with a cup of strawberries. And the strawberries are like, really a hamburger? You don't think I can continue the magic, but I will get you back to baseline. Okay. Mind blown. Whoa. Are you understanding that? That literally just a cup of strawberries, all those phytochemicals, those plant-based nutrients can get released from your food into your bloodstream, neutralize the chaos caused by that pancakes and bacon. But what if, what, 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 oh, what if it were Chuck's breakfast? What if it were your half a cup of oatmeal, maybe with some soy milk and some steel cut oats, right? Plus the berries and cinnamon and a little flax. Wah! Then the basic stress that happens from that healthy meal would be over like poof. And now, oh, what are all these phytochemicals going to do all day? Or at least for the next three hours, they're actually going to course through your veins, saturating other cells and reversing disease that's there, other points of oxidative stress that have nothing to do with the meal you just ate because it was so healthy. You're going to start melting plaque away, melting flat, fat away. You're going to see, wait, that deranged cancer cell? We have no interest in you. Whoop, let's kill you. Let's stoke your immune system to seek and destroy cancer cells. Basically, you're going to take away the lavender salts and the fun bubbles, right? Boof, apoptosis. Oh, back to John. So John, I tell him this story and, and I just want to educate you because this is 2017 and this is an excellent anesthesiologist, super smart guy who says to me in response, so 
Do you think that what I eat can affect cancer? And I said, yes. And it has now been five years and I am not lying to you. I see John all the time and I see him often eating. And whenever he's eating, it's still the pancakes and bacon, but guess what he always, always has beside it? Strawberries. A cup of strawberries. And I'm like, hey, John, blueberries are actually even more potent. You know, you can mix it up. <laughs> wow. I am not lying. The guy is a strawberry king. Wow, that's great, man. You talk about splitting the difference. I mean, like that's I'm looking at that chart and you're right. I can see why you got so excited by this. I mean, you're talking about essentially eating, not essentially, but eating the exact same thing, except for adding the strawberries. And the difference there is just amazing. It really is. So I call it a strategic side dish. Um, I was on Rachel Ray uh, the other day and she we were talking about eating whole food plant-based. We were talking about the four-pronged approach to beating breast cancer. And she was saying, we were saying, you don't necessarily have to not eat the chicken. And I was like, absolutely. It's all about the strategic side dish. If you have a huge salad there or a bunch of greens. Now, most people know I am whole food, you know, plant-based all the way, like ride or die, baby. But not everybody's going to make that turn like that. And so the thing is transitioning and you have to, in my opinion, be accepting of strides forward. If it's a baby step, fine. If it's a giant leap, awesome. But to me, just teaching someone whose plate was going to be a big steak or a chicken breast with French fries. And uh, I don't know what else they put in there. Some, <laughs> what else do you put? <laughs> That's crappy. <laughs> Something else crappy. Um, in replacing that, with this health food that can be an antioxidant inside your body is critical. And it's a very critical um, educational transformation that's going to only lead to true, like, hey, let's try a meatless Monday. Let's move that on to be Thursdays also. Like you have to meet people where they are and encourage them in the changes that they're willing to make and not be all or none, in my opinion. Yeah, but, but to that notion, you're talking about a small change eating a cup of strawberries and a big difference, right? Not that complete overhaul. And for people who are skeptical and they just want to dip their toe in the water, that can still lead to that immense, immense, immense benefit. So I, I like that approach a lot. Cool. Let's, let's do it together. You yeah. Change the world. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> if you really want to eat, if you really want to defeat cancer, then I want you to eat like you mean it. These phytonutrients, they equal plant warfare. So you just chew and swallow that broccoli or those berries, or you sprinkle some turmeric on a rice dish and boom, you're releasing chemicals, curcumin. If you drink green tea, you've got the epigallocatechin gallate or EGCG. If you chomp on the skin of red grapes or have a little red wine, you're releasing resveratrol, potent antioxidant. Flax seeds and avocado, omega-3 fatty acids. Our berries have procyanidins. Genistine is found in soy, lycopene and tomatoes, anthocyanidins and apples, limonene. You'd think I was gonna say in lemons. Ha <laughs> it's in oranges. It's also in lemons, it's just higher in oranges. <laughs> so, right, lemon, lemon, I, you, all right, wait, citrus. So, <laughs> All right. So my point here is that these chemicals, they do all the fighting for you. All you have to do is chew and swallow the right foods. It's pretty miraculous. 
All right, peeps, let's meet frenemy number one, insulin light growth factor one, IGF one. It has one mission in life, and that is to tell everybody to grow, grow, grow. This critical growth promoter, it works the miracle of children becoming adults, right? But we only get so tall and our hands only get so big. So what is IGF one doing for the rest of our adult lives? Surprise. Surprising to some of you, we turn over 50 billion cells a day, so they need replacing. And as a growth promoter, guess who replaces them? So IGF-1 helps post-exercise muscles repair, and it helps brain cells that need protecting. But once these tasks are complete, if there's excess IGF-1 screaming at cells to grow, grow, then grow they will into cancer, into metastases, into the liver, into the lung, into the bone, into the brain. Somebody better stop that IGF-1 down, right? Stomp it down, I meant. Um, hmm, turns out you're that someone. Your brain tells your liver how much IGF-1 to produce for the day's daily activities. And it is predominantly in response to eating animal protein and animal protein alone, meat, dairy, and eggs, that stimulates an excessive amount of that IGF-1. Check this out. Over 6,000 adults over the age of 50 were followed for 18 years. And those ages 50 to 65 years old, higher animal protein levels, catch that, just higher versus lower protein. So we're not putting some vegans into the mix. 430% increase in cancer death and a 7,300%, a 74 times the amount of type two diabetes. So this is, again, compared to the low protein group. And IGF-1 emerged as an important moderator of the association between protein consumption and mortality, since wherever the protein went, IGF-1 levels were sure to follow, just like Mary and her little nap, which would actually happen even more so if Mary ate her lamb. All right, so notably, no such elevations in risk happened when proteins were derived from plants, only animals. If you could not respond to IGF-1 at all, you would have Laron syndrome and you would be very short. You would have medical dwarfism, which makes sense because you wouldn't have anyone screaming at you to grow. But guess what else you wouldn't have? That's my drum roll on the desk. Cancer. Not one person with IGF-1 deficiency in the history of the world has ever gotten breast cancer. And in fact, only one person with Laron syndrome has ever gotten any type of cancer in 2017. It was a stage one ovarian cancer and she's still alive. So that's astounding. What else is astounding? No one in the history of the world with IGF-1 deficiency ever gets type two diabetes. Astounding again. So clearly IGF-1 contributes substantially to the causation of all cancer and diabetes. It creates a microenvironment. It's in that bathtub that's been proven conducive to breast cancer and it increases breast cancer's invasiveness. Studies showed that women with high circulating IGF-1 levels had 38% more estrogen-driven cancer than those with low levels. Okay, this is my favorite study. So here we go. When a woman comes to me and she's like, Doc, that was a beautiful spiel, but I'm like 68 years old, I'm fat, and now I have breast cancer. So it's too late for me. Like, I, I can't make this change because it's too late to intervene and see results. And that's when I'm like, oh, no, sister, it is not too late. Let me tell you about a study. So I can tell you how to lower your IGF-1. 
and make more of the IGF-1 binding protein, which is like a body snatcher that retires IGF-1 from circulation. Just do what a group of 38 obese women did following this Pritikin plan, which is a low fat, high fiber diet and whole food plant-based with daily exercise classes for 30 to 60 minutes a day. Oh, wait, wait. before you 38 ladies go, let me just check some blood markers. If you don't mind, I'm going to um, just, just look at a few things like your insulin and your estrogen levels. And, oh, I'm going to take a little bit of your blood and I'm going to drip it onto three different human breast cancer cell lines on a Petri dish and see what happens. Oh, some robust growth happening there from your blood. Okay, ladies, off you go for 12 um, years, for 12 months, no, 12 weeks. Oh, it was just 12 days, 12 days of following the Pritikin plan and they come back. Guess what? IGF-1, estradiol, both with and without HRT levels plummeted and insulin all reduced between 19 and 37% from baseline. And the IGF-1 binding protein increased by 32%, all with statistically significant p-values, in case you have that statistical mind, p less than 0.05. But now let's uh, go back to the Petri farm. Let me get some new blood. Let's get three fresh Petri dishes with three different breast cancer cell lines. And this time, when we drip the blood, breast cancer cells dramatically slow and start exploding apoptosis. From less than two weeks, it is not too late for you, sister. Wow. Wow. That's why I said it was one of my favorites. It was one of the big ones that turned me. Just, I'm, I've seen enough now. I, I, I always get straight A's my whole life and the extra credit too. People will be like, how did you get 105 on that test? I'm like, well, you don't answer anything wrong and you do the extra credit. <laughs> okay. So once I figured that out about food, I was like, vegan baby. All right. So processed meat. Some might call processed meat by friendly names, right? Like sausage, hot dog, bacon, but the IARC, the international agency for research on cancer calls them potentially deadly. In 2015, 22 scientists from 10 countries met uh, at the ARC, IARC in Lyon, France to answer two questions. Are what, I'll just make it a run on. Are red meat and processed meats bad for your health? So the working group assessed over 800 epidemiologic studies, and they looked into cancer and red or processed meat consumption in countries from several continents with diverse ethnicities and diets. And their conclusion was a resounding highest warning level possible to the consumption of all processed meat, labeling it flat out carcinogenic to humans on par with smoking in asbestos and in plutonium, and they classified red meat as probably carcinogenic to humans. So this caused me to um, quickly Google processed meat. Yeah, I'm a grown adult, but I was just like, please, please don't say it isn't so. Oh no, yeah, my organic sliced turkey breast that I got from the deli section is processed meat, but it's organic and it's lean meat, turkey. And so I will divert this slideshow for a second to tell you my story. This was my come to kale moment. And what happened was um, I was writing the book that I already told you about that I always had to be right because I'm 
don't, I didn't want to spread falsehood. And because I knew the book would have spears thrown at it and I needed it to be spirit proof. <laughs> um, cause I grew up as a Viking and, uh, <laughs> bullets, I think bullets would fly and my book should be bulletproof that be more an appropriate analogy. But the point is I needed also just to be right. It's in my nature and it makes me delightful to be married to. So this particular day, people are like, how did you write this whole book? And you had this transformation and you did it all. And like, I actually wrote the whole book in like six months, but I, I'm like, I didn't parent. That's how I wrote the book. Like I still had to work and make money and be a doctor. So yeah, I have no idea what happened in second grade. First day of third grade though, I took the boys to school. I took the morning off like a good mom and I was walking them into school and this mom comes up to me. She's like, Oh, who was Justin's teacher last year? I think he was with my Sally. And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Literally like whoop, all of second grade. Um, However, every once in a while I would be like, you know, back then it was so funny. I'd be writing in the corner of my room. I had this little like desk and uh, at a window and I would just type on my tiny MacBook this whole book. And on I would take Friday off. And so Friday, Saturday and Sunday, I would write nonstop for like 16 hours a day. And that's wow. how the book came to be. But the kids were of an age back then was at eight, seven, seven years old that they would just come up to where my room was, lie on the ground, just be like, Mom, I'm bored. Like, <laughs> just like this chaos in the background of writing the book. Anyway, this one morning, they were going to camp on Friday. And um, so I run downstairs and I'm like, I'm going to be a good parent for a second. And I'm going to make their lunches. And I, um, I am a product of the 80s. So I graduated high school in 1987, which means that I am a product of carb fear. So bread, pasta, rice, and potatoes, just look at that stuff and it makes you fat, right? So like any loving mother, I was passing my carb fear onto my children. In other words, I was making sandwiches without bread. So what I did was I took an organic, oh, I'm saying this out loud, organic processed meat slice. It was turkey. It gets better. I put a mozzarella stick in it. And then I put it on a big bed of lettuce and rolled it up. I could have just been rolling up cigarettes, but I didn't know it. And I put it in their lunch boxes with some fruit and off they went to camp. And I am not lying when I say I went back up to my little corner to start writing. And that's when I came across the IARC ruling. Oh, I'd no. never read it before. Of no, all was, the days. This was the day. I was in a complete panic. I cleared it with Andy. And then when I heard their little feet coming through the door, I was so grateful they're still alive. Run downstairs. Boys, boys, come here, come here. They're like, what, what, mom? Come to the fridge. And with tremendous panache, I swing open the refrigerator door. And I say, boys, we're going vegan. And they were like, yeah, what is vegan? (laughs) That was it. We literally cleared out the fridge. I had four paper bags filled to the brim with like, the salmon we were going to barbecue for dinner, my cheese therapy drawer with my five-year-age Gouda, my Manchego and Brie and all of it just went in these bags. And I, um, to be honest, drove one mile to my 90-year-old parent's house and said, here, it's too late for you. (laughs) You know that that's not true. Uh, But my mother would never speak to me again if she knew I had thrown away all of that perfectly good carcinogenic food. So, you know, they grew up in the depression. They really would have lost it. So, 
they were going to buy it anyway. I just saved them hundreds of dollars. Okay. Were, were your kids at that young age able to grasp like what it then meant to be vegan and the reasons behind it? Did you, did you try to explain that to them? I did. So they were a couple days past eight. They had just had their birthday like three days earlier. And that night which was a huge thing because literally I did not have, spend a second either. I was working or writing that book or maybe sleeping. Um, but this night after springing that on them, we sat down and watched What the Health. And at eight years old, they got it. They got it so rapidly that this is how it transpired. I allowed a cheat day, even for myself. I was like, okay, this is a little extreme. Like let's, um, we're doing this and this is why. And what the health helped it to explain that. But you no, know, once a week you can pick a day and if you want pizza or ice cream or, you know, you just let me know if you want chicken or barbecued salmon. I was thinking I want my sushi back. Um, and so that week went by, they were so good. They came back from camp the next day and I was like, how'd it go? What'd you eat? And they're like, nothing. We had fruit and chips. And I'm like, well, they have veggie burgers, don't they? No mom, they have cheese inside them. And I was like, you asked? They were like, uh, duh. Like I was blown away that they, it wasn't a slice of cheese on top. They were like, are these made with cheese inside? And the yeah score one yeah. for your kids that's yeah. impressive it's crazy impressive so what's even more impressive is that um i they could pick their own cheat day it didn't have to be like family cheat day or whatever and uh they went to a birthday party of all things but it was summer and then they came home and i said what happened did you guys have pizza or what was what was it there and they're like well we looked at it but we don't understand why we're having why would we have a cheat day I love your kids. I absolutely adore your kids. Thank you. It, I, I mean, it's just in their DNA. Like I can't even take credit. It, I, they, they blew me away with that. They not only understood the negative effects on their bodies, like they'll come home from school and be like, mom, so-and-so has Lunchables every day. She's so going to get diabetes. Mm. <laughs> and, <but then> you <laughs> get the animal cruelty and the climate change and the carbon footprint. They, they get it all. And they're, they're full on in, like there's, I mean, they can do what they want when they're adults, but um, there's no sign of it stopping. I mean, it's, it's really one of the sweetest moments. One of the cutest things that really tugged at my heart was uh, only about mm, six weeks into it. We went to Whole Foods and at that supermarket, they have this like, ode to cheese. <laughs> it's like the center of the market. And it's just like piles and piles. It would have been my, like, like my happy place in d days of yore. But uh, in this particular moment, I was off somewhere else and Justin full on like pulling me, he's like leaning sideways, mom, 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 mom. Okay, you've got to go when they do that. So he pulls me over to the cheese and he goes, mom, look. And I look and I'm like, not getting it. And he leans over and he goes, mom, they don't know. <laughs> it like just broke my heart. Like Aww. they don't know. They don't know how bad it is. And that's exactly it. And guess who else doesn't know? Your doctor doesn't know. Your doctor had a chicken sandwich for lunch and is having steak or hamburger for dinner. And he's going to wake up and have eggs in the morning or it could be a she. So they don't know. But now you know. So what are you going to do about it? Uh, let, let me ask you this, though. Uh, sp uh, we had a leftover question when we did the live Q&A um, from somebody by the name of Elaine. And um, Elaine was explaining how they are whole food plant based through and through, except they do have that cheat day. She said uh, every two months. 
she'll indulge in something like crab cakes. The science, I mean, let's try to be honest here. And, and, and the science, what does that show as far as somebody who has that more flexitarian diet as opposed to a strict plant-based whole food diet? So it's again, compared to what the flexitarian will have more cancer and higher cancer mortality than the full plant-based eater but they will have dramatically less cancer and cancer mortality than the red meat and processed meat consumer. Mm. And as far as Elaine goes, your cells are never going to notice a couple bites of something animal-based every two months if you're truly plant-based. But get this, this is a fun study and it's hot off the presses. It came out in June, 2022. They followed um, just over 65,000 women I might be talking about this, but anyway, I'll talk about it now. 65,000 women for, get this, 21 years. And they found that those who followed a whole food plant-based diet, um, a healthy one, the, this is the whole point. Everybody was whole food plant-based, but they divided them into healthy and unhealthy. So unhealthy, of course, is going to be higher saturated fat and processed and highly refined foods, tons of sugar, um, but still everybody's plant-based. And so the healthy eaters had dramatically statistically significant less breast cancer but the unhealthy plant-based eaters had 20 percent more breast cancer interesting right so it gets a little overwhelming if you're still that woman parking the kids at mcdonald's for dinner on friday nights because that's Mm. one place that's a huge stretch. Like it's, you're telling me to eat plants and now you've got to tell me like within the world of plants, there's the, and that's where we get, I think a little too divisive with the oils and the salts. Although yes, it's true. Oils inflammatory and salt raises blood pressure. And you know, we can't let best be the enemy of better when someone's over here at bad. Like if I can get bad to good and from good to better, and if that's where they park it for the rest of their, their lives, it's so much better than staying where it was bad. For sure. I was just having that conversation recently on the show with uh, Dr. Will Bolsowitz because somebody had, yeah, Will Will is my guy, but somebody had written in to me and was like, Chuck, you're a fraud because you eat kimchi and kimchi has sodium. And I thought that one, like that kind of rubbed me the wrong way until I thought like, well, that's just laughable because of exactly what it was, Dr. Funk, you just said better than what? Kimchi is, self. Yeah, kimchi is better than the 10,000 milligrams of sodium I was getting every single time I went to Taco Bell. Legitimately, 10,000 milligrams every single time I went there. My order never changed. So am I a fraud because I eat kimchi that's got a little bit of sodium in it? It's not that 10,000 milligrams. I don't know. Like, come on, people. Right. little common sense. Yeah. Again, don't let best be the enemy of better. All right. So, oh yeah. So the processed meat thing, 193 plus post thousand postmenopausal women in this study were followed 9.4 years. And there was a 25% increase in breast cancer in red and processed meat consumers. So I'm just trying to show that there is data to back up the IARC ruling when it comes specifically to eating these foods and breast and getting breast cancer or dying from it. Um, but here's an interesting one that may change some eating habits. I remember I lectured about this 
before I was plant-based because I was always interested in diet and lifestyle, but I didn't delve deeply enough. Like it really required having to write this book and being so intense about it to uncover all the nutritional science. But this is a stat, it's old, uh, 1998. So um, I would go lecture. I was the director of patient education back in my early career at Cedar sinai Medical Center. And these lectures were like very poorly attended. It was like by five old ladies who were hardly listening. <laughs> and so I tried to spice it up a bit because it used to be about breast cancer. And as I mentioned already, people don't really care unless they have it. So I started to talk about what you can do. And I had come across this study. And so I was teaching people, you probably want to avoid very well done meat because the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and the heterocyclic amines that form from high heat cooking actually link to breast cancer. How much higher? 54% higher for hamburger consumers, 64% more breast cancer for bacon eaters, 121% for beefsteak eaters. And then for women who eat all three of these meats, well done, have a 362% higher risk than women who are plant-based? No, than women who choose the same meats, rare or medium done. Mm. Think about if the comparison had been to the vegetarian or vegan. This is incredible to me to think mm. that, right? Just the well doneness. Wow. So at some point, some people listening to us might be like, yeah, but what about keto? What about paleo? What about Atkins? What about South Beach? Because I love myself some meat. And hey, I became keto and I totally lost 25 pounds and I dropped using a bunch of my insulin because I'm diabetic. And what do I think about that? Well, first of all, let me just tell you something very current. This uh, study is from August 2022. Plant-based and ketogenic diets as diverging paths to address cancer, a review. So this review suggests that the collective available evidence strongly supports plant-enriched diets versus ketogenic for the reduction of cancer risk. And it also improves metabolic disorders in breast cancer survivors. So this study was specifically looking at recurrence and mortality risk in a keto versus plant-based diet in breast cancer survivors. So this supports eating plant-based, but let's get a little bit more into the woods on like, but really I wanna understand because we do have to answer the questions that it is true that when you go keto, you can lose weight and your diabetes can improve and even cholesterol levels can seem to improve. So what's up with that? And why isn't that a good way to eat? So we're not gonna get into the fact that eating meat and dairy leads to horrific animal cruelty and water pollution and water scarcity and pesticide and antibiotic overuse and the emergence of antibiotic resistant superbugs. I'm not going to talk about how the EPA says that big Aggie accounts for 24% of all greenhouse gas emissions, which is more than all transportation sources combined, and 90% of deforestation, which releases like 50 billion tons of carbon into the sky every day, leading uh, <laughs> every in total and not every day uh leading to climate change biodiversity loss ocean dead zones planet destruction i'm not talking about any of the catastrophic natural disasters that result therefrom like heat waves and floods and wildfires and melting ice caps and irony upon irony exacerbation of world hunger well you see uh this all kind of culminates in the end of life on this planet you wondering so 82 percent of starving children live where livestock consume the food instead of the kids and then westerners consume the livestock so that's why eating animals leads to 
human starvation. But I'm not going to say that any of that is a reason to avoid low-carb meat-centric diets like keto. I'm just going to give you one reason, three letters, actually. L-A-D, left anterior descending, otherwise known as the widow maker. This is the main artery coming down and over your heart, um, giving it the blood supply it needs to keep on pumping. So you need to remember that, like I said, it's true that high protein, low carb diets generally can result in weight loss, but it's largely water weight and loss of lean mass. Um, and yes, keto can lower triglycerides and blood pressure and increase your HDL. But here's the thing, what you really wanna measure is a coronary calcium score not just these external things like the blood pressure and the triglyceride level you need to you need to see how much plaque has built up on the arteries in real time and yes keto can lower blood glucose but you know what you need to to tell the truth of diabetes it's not a hemoglobin a1c score which is people what people get and then claim that keto is helping their diabetes you need an oral glucose tolerance test you need to guzzle down some liquid sugar and then prove to me that your insulin doesn't spike from that. So you've got to do all this actually in like 10,000 people who've been keto for say like 10 years. And then you have to compare them to 10,000 more who have been plant-based for 10 years. That's how you arrive at randomized controlled trials. And we don't have that. And we're probably never going to have that. And the keto studies that we do have that make bold claims about reversing illness really look at them. They have a follow-up of weeks and at most to months. There is no high-carb plant-based comparison group in, in them, and they're not long-term, and they're not large volumes. So until we have them, well, they may, they may never be done, probably never. Uh, also, ketogenic eating is hard to sustain long-term because you, like, don't, you don't poop. Um, <laughs> other reasons. But, okay, so back to the Widowmaker. Some of you um, probably know that you're looking at a photo from the landmark 1990 work of Dr. Dean Ornish in the Lifestyle Heart Trial, where he took all of these 28 cardiac patients and assigned them to either an experimental group, which was low-fat vegetarian, stop smoking, less stress, and try to exercise versus the other um, group in care as usual, right? Just... Oh, wait, before you guys go, let's do some quantitative coronary, coronary angiography. And that's what you're looking at. So we're going to inject some dye into your vein and poof, we're going to take a picture of what that dye does when it comes to the heart vessels. And eee, there's so much black right here, it's barely getting by. And it just needs like one more hamburger before, boom, that sucker is totally occluded. And without its blood supply down here, the main ventricle of the heart is not going to be able to it's called a heart attack <laughs> and sudden death. Okay, so off they go, right? We've got our group eating more vegetarian and trying to exercise. They go away for a year and they all come back and <sighs> artery wide open. No medications, no surgery, just kale. Okay, not just kale, but plant-based eating and some diet and some lifestyle behavioral change. You know, I highlighted that this trial happened in 1990 because I went to medical school in 1992 and I didn't feel hear a single peep about this complete game changer until I was writing the book in 2017. Mm. So two years after we found out that not pills and procedures, but 
plant-based eating could reverse the number one killer of people on the planet. I didn't hear anything about it. So I'm like, what, wait a minute, was it published in Green Leafy Magazine? Oh, no, it was in The Lancet, like the most reputable medical journal on the planet. So then I thought, well, he must have lied. That's why no one talks about it. Oh, wait, but then there's this guy. So Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, um, I, uh, I call him Essie. I went to his house, that's his house, or standing in the kitchen, and uh, there were all these family members around, and I just like rolled on in, and I was like, hi! <laughs> notice me i'm like i'm gonna live here forever because i love that esselstyn family they are all so amazing and wonderful rip and jane and Anne. okay back to this guy with the audacious title of his book prevent and reverse heart disease oh i let me go back to it so it this book if you don't know it is an astounding book because it documents a 20 year plus nutritional study on 200 cardiac cripples it is the longest study of its kind ever done. And he, just like Ornish, once again showed that plants deliver the angiographic proof of like eat blood vessel to bam, artery wide open. So, you know, as Dr. Michael Greger likes to point out, there is only one diet in the history of the world that has been scientifically proven to slow stop and even reverse the number one killer of you and everyone you love. And, um, it's powerful, right? And it not only reverses heart disease, but it's also been proven to prevent or slow or stop and even reverse other killers, right? Stroke, Alzheimer's, diabetes, obesity, other cancers besides breast. So honestly, when bacon and bulletproof coffee can do all of that, then our keto loving patients or friends are going to have my attention. Um, but until then, which frankly is going to be never, I'm sticking with the kale. I uh, usually when I'm doing like a live presentation and I've gone through much of what we've talked about, I'm chatting with a carnivorous audience, right? And, and um, I think to myself, like literally, I'm all like at this point, like, oh, what's that sound? Ding, ding. Oh, it must be the sound of plant-based converts getting their vegan wings. <laughs> I It happens every time. I'm all like, and then suddenly, ooh, 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 doc, I have a question. I have a question. Yes. What is your question? And it is, huh? <laughs> the chicken is okay, right? <laughs> um, no, it's not. So look at this study. 35,000 plus women are followed for eight years. 1,850 subsequent breast cancers develop. And now, here we got it, compared to no meat consumers, eating red meat increased that breast cancer risk by 41%, processed meat consumption increased breast cancer risk by 39%, and chicken, there it is, increased it by 22%. Wow. So, no, no to chicken, but... Ugh. Are you serious? Is fish okay? <laughs> I get that every time. Wait, wait. Dairy's okay, right? You're not talking about butter, are you? Or eggs that you're not. Yeah, um, check out our podcast from before. Was it last year? Chuck? I did a real, no, last year we did a lot of fun, maybe 2020, but just check out me and Chuck. I do a deep <laughs> dive into dairy. I do a deep dive with slides into eggs. Like I really did talk about all of this before. So if you want to get into the weeds with it, there's some beautiful podcasts um, that Chuck did with me. But I'll just give you this one overarching study that answers the uh, fish and dairy and egg question. 
sort of, I mean, no one study is going to like be the be all it be all end all for people, but this is a biggie. The Adventist Health 2 study followed 69,000 people for just four years and eating meat was categorized as eating meat or eating, sorry, get it. Eating was categorized as eating meat, about half of them, 33,000 plus versus vegetarian, 35,000. And in that just four-year period, almost 3,000 cancers developed, 5.1% in men, 3.8% in women. This is a really cool study. So relative to the meat-eating group, the vegetarian group had 24% less cancers. But mm. here's the interesting part. They subdivide it. Eating is now subcategorized in the vegetarian group as being vegan. We had 4,922 of them no meat, dairy, or eggs, pescatarian, along the lines of your prior question, Chuck, that someone had asked in the live Q&A, pescatarian eating, we had 7,000 of them, but we had 20,000. This is what I typically think when I think vegetarian is a lacto-ovo vegetarian. And then a sometimes meat, semi-vegetarian, 4,000 people. Now, when we do the subdivision, Vegans are the only subgroup to show a statistically significant 34% drop in breast and gynecologic cancers relative to meat eaters. So what you're seeing is that the addition of fish, the addition of a little milk and cheese or eggs, the addition of an occasional uh, salmon fillet uh, of, uh, what is that called? Steak, <laughs> steak fillet. Um, occasional, just basically negates the anti-cancer properties of the food. Um, so that's the answer to fish and dairy and eggs. I'm going to provide a little neat and tidy checklist for you guys for when people are like, but, right, but what about, because I get that all day long, so I have a thing that I go through in my head. So what about fish or what about dairy? First of all, there's a cellular response to eating animal protein and animal saturated fat that your body can't help but make. So we could care less how happy and sustainably raised that beef patty was before it was beheaded. Um, if it was roaming free and eating fresh grass without growth promoters shoved under their skin, um, then your body still doesn't care. It's going to elevate estrogen. It's going to elevate IGF-1. It's going to create angiogenesis and it's going to get inflamed. Next thing is what's naturally in that meat or milk. So saturated and trans fats, cholesterol, heme iron, and nitroso compounds. Um, so you're going to chew and swallow that stuff down. Number three, the carcinogens from cooking. We went over the external polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, the heterocyclic amines, and how increased that cancer risk is just from that burnt well-grilled meat but it turns out that you make those same carcinogenic compounds the hcas etc in a 30 minute cooked uh chicken breast in the oven it just isn't as high of a quantity but it's all still there so you also have nitrosamines in your processed meats fip tmao bad stuff Number four, there's contaminants and additives in the meat. So maybe not in the organic version, but most meat is conventionally raised. Like 94% of all uh, beef patties come from conventionally raised cattle, which means they have xeranol shoved behind their ear, which is the world's most potent synthetic uh, estrogen. That's what that is. It's a growth promoter that literally has 100,000% more estrogen 
mimicking abilities than the BPA in plastic. So that's when I laugh to myself when people are like good at in and out burger, but they're like, oh no, I'm not drinking that from that plastic water bottle that was in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't know the difference between the xeranol problem in their beef and the BPA in the plastic in their water bottle. But anyway, back to contaminants and additives in the meat that you're swallowing down include the xeranol I mentioned, but then they actually, so the main things for growth promotion are estradiol, progesterone, testosterone, which has to help you think about hormone replacement therapy a little bit. Like if they're giving all of these actual estrogens to cattle to make them big and fat fast, what do you think an excessive amount is doing to you? Then there's pesticides and herbicides and antibiotics and dioxins and PCBs, microplastics in your fish. Um, so you're swallowing the stuff down. And finally, what's not in the meat? Like, what are we missing? Certain vitamins, there's no C, A, D, E, and K. You're missing certain minerals like calcium, potassium, boron, manganese. Um, antioxidants, we already saw there's 64 times the antioxidant content in plants versus animals. So you really aren't getting much, if any, because you're not going to have, what was it now, 27 slices of pizza. Uh, there are no phytonutrients because until the meat industry injects them, like we talked about, uh, plant-based nutrients are missing from meat. There's no water. And my personal favorite, there is no fiber. So this then leads to the next question, where do I get my protein? And the answer is you need about 0.36 grams of protein per pound. It's about 50 grams of protein a day if you're under 65. And I like to see more like 65 grams if you're over 65. But it's really easy to get. And as long as you're not gluten, um, if you don't, you don't have celiac, which 1% of people do, um, you can have seitan. Seitan is packed with protein, a third of a cup. And it's like this chewy, meaty, if you've never had it, check it out. Uh, 21 grams of protein in a third of a cup. So you're almost halfway to your goal. Soy, tempeh, tofu, edamame, just a half cup has 20 grams of protein. Lentils, a cup, 18 grams. Soy milk, by the way, has like eight grams of protein, so not as much per cup. Beans, 15 grams of protein. Nuts and nut butters and seeds, seven to 10 grams. Peas, eight grams. Quinoa, seven to nine grams. Um, quinoa and soy are whole complete proteins. They've got all the amino acids, essential and non-essential. Wild rice has like six grams. Steel cut oats has five grams. And the list goes on. I never count my protein. I know I'm getting enough. Basically, no doctor in America has ever in the last, I don't know, century diagnosed kwashiorkor, which is a disease that comes from a lot of protein deficiency. <laughs> so we're getting enough protein. Don't worry about it. I'm going to conclude today by just sharing a few things that are completely free and I'd love for you to know about it. One is Power Up, pinklotus.com, go to Power Up. This is um, just an amazing free online community where it, we're bursting with ways to connect with each other. You can educate yourself, you can hold a fundraiser if you're, say, with breast cancer and needing reconstruction and are underinsured. We have events listed here, but a couple of my favorites to highlight. Um, one is called Breast Buddies, and it was born out of my reading this study. The LACE study followed over 2,200 2, early stage women with breast cancer for 10.8 years. And those who reported out low levels of social support from friends and family or a lack of religious and social participation were 58% more likely to have died during the decade of follow-up than those with low levels of support. And remember, these are early stage cancers, so we weren't really expecting them to die. And it just really highlights to me the impact of psychosocial connection and support and friendship and feeling accepted and loved. And not everybody has a BFF. Not everybody has a family that they like. So everyone can have 
a breast buddy. Um, breast buddies pairs you age for age, stage for stage, treatment for treatment, newly diagnosed women with those who have been there, done that solely for the purposes of friendship. So you can go in and like log in your details. You can start as a voyeur if you want, you have to sign up, but then you can put in like, like I'm 51, mastectomy, chemo, and boop, up will pop all the women who are plus or minus five years of age from you who had a mastectomy and did chemo. And they're there because they would love to hear from you. The other cool thing that I just started this year with my husband, Andy, are local chapters. There are 25 across the country in major cities. And this is just a cool group of people who are like-minded. You don't have to have cancer. Uh, most of these activities, I bring the kids along. We do bike rides, hikes, walks, runs. We we're going camping for the first time. Um, in a few months, we do volunteering. I have group fasting because misery loves company and I hate doing five day fast, but I'm gonna do one um, and uh, make everybody do it with me on Zoom. We're gonna eat dinner together. Dinner, I call it dinner. It's like astronaut soup food. <laughs> anyway, so uh, again, it's just about being coming a cancer kicker. I also launched this past year, my cancer kicking um, kitchen has cook lives with Chrissy who is a certified um, holistic nutritionist. I circles are like, you can't tell the difference between my face and that face, but people are like, your sisters? And we're like, yeah, our mom couldn't think of a different name. So we're just both named Christine, <laughs> <laughs> um, which isn't true. My name is actually Christy, legally. Anyway, Cook Live with Christy and Dr. Christy, they're cook-alongs. Most people don't cook along and I would love it if you did because that would make me so much happier. But it's on Zoom, um, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube and you can watch it in retrospect. We post it all, but it's so fun when it's live and we do, I do answer all the questions or most of the questions that come through the Zoom channel. And what's different about it is I teach people why food can be delicious medicine. Um, I spotlight certain ingredients in the meal of the month and dive into the science as to why it's so healthy to eat and dispel common food myths. And I think you'll think it's really fun. So please join me. Here are my books. Uh, there's only one. It's kind of a misnomer. This is just paperback, um, but it has a bonus chapter. It has chapter 11. So maybe you want that one. Again, Elements is our online store. You will find a number of leading women's um, health and um, breast cancer support products here. I've really intelligently formulated. Everything is really safe, always vegan. Many of them have randomized controlled trials behind them, making them very unique offerings. Um, there's the non-estrogenic menopause miracle, which people cannot stop taking because then they have all their hot flashes and mid swings come back. It works incredibly well. Um, so anyway, have a check out, please check out the store. And then finally, don't forget, Let's be breastcancer.org. We are live and in action all year long, but particularly in October, we hit it hard um, because we've got all of our live um, giveaways going on and Zooms every Thursday in the month of October. So don't for, don't miss out on your chance at cool giveaways and weekly newsletters. Join us as we all beat breast cancer by following a plant-based diet, exercising regularly, minimizing alcohol, and maintaining an ideal body weight. Love it. I feel like we have just learned so much over this past, uh, I would say an hour or so, <laughs> I'm not even looking uh, at the clock, but I mean, there's just so much there. And the only question that I have left for you is uh, it goes back to something you, you talked about really close to the start of the show is, uh, you know, that sugar cube size uh, cancer cell. Like, how were they able to determine that it sheds 3.2 million of, of these cells like every single day, like 3.2 million. Like did somebody sit there, Dr. Funk and count them individually? I mean, that is just boom, mind blowing to me. 
So this was a 1974 study conducted by the NIH. And what I did tell you is that it was studied in mice. So they took human breast cancers and grafted them onto mice. I'm so sorry, little mice, I am. But I now have this fact, so I'm gonna spread the fact. Thank you, mice, for sacrificing yourselves to tell us. To me, something like that's a call to action. Like when you hear that, um, you just gotta be like, wow. God or that extra broccoli I had saved me because I didn't even know about plant-based before I had my diagnosis. And I was saved from those millions upon millions of cells day after day after day because of what little good I was doing. And now that I'm going to amp up my game, uh, this thing is not going to come back. And you can feel that confident. So yeah, they did um, uh, blood draws on the mice. And yeah, you can quantify, they have cell quantification, magical things that they put blood in and they can count cells like that. Wow. 3.2 million. That's such an enormous number. Uh, really hard to wrap your head around that. Um, you yeah. know what? This is a good thing for me to share with your audience because I'm obsessed with it. Um, and we've never talked about it before because we normally focus on food and lifestyle, but this is my new go-to in all of my cancer patients. It's called Signaterra and it goes through insurance. And when insurance doesn't cover it, uh, they don't charge you right now. So I'm obsessed. So this is what it is. They take your cancer from the slides and they analyze it for 16 different DNA mutations that belong to your cancer and they make a blood test out of it. Then they come to your house, draw your blood and run it through that test. If you're cured, you should never ever have any of those mutations that belong to a cancer that's hopefully in a bucket in a lab somewhere in your blood, right? Right, so they run your blood every three months and the breast data shows that if you are two years with a zero level of mutations in your blood, less than 3% of women will ever recur. Wow. And if the blood test should become positive, this is key, nine and a half months from now in the breast population, is when a PET CT will light up or symptoms will show up like bone pain or tumor markers that we test like CEA will rise up. So you have this almost 10 month window in which to intervene because you know the rogue cells are coming and they're coming back, but you've got 10 months to do things to make sure that that never happens. And this is a test relevant for every single solid cancer that exists. So breast, but also pro prostate and lung and colon and gastric and ovarian, every cancer can be tested. So if you want to learn more about it, I have an FAQ at tumordna.com. You can read a little deep dive into that and um, then ask your doctor about ordering it for you, or you, you can order it at tumordna.com. Wow. That, I had no idea such a thing existed. That's it's very neat. Yeah. Yeah, this I'm is the first company on earth to, to offer it, but more are following suit. <laughs> All right. Well, look, uh, you and I still have a lot to cover here. Uh, we've got one more episode to go, and that's when we're going to do a deep dive into uh, our four-pronged approach for Let's Beat Breast Cancer and really why each one of those four steps or prongs is really key for taking your risk of cancer and lowering it. I mean, smashing it, mashing it, just rub it into the ground as far as it'll possibly go drop that uh, risk and and go on and have that healthy healthy future that we all want uh so much to talk about we're going to push pause for now we're going to come back and do that on the next episode dr funk but thank you for being here today thanks for having me
one show still to go with Dr. Funk. And the next one, the last episode in our three-part series, we will be shifting the focus to the four steps for our approach to beating breast cancer, including F-O-O-D. Really going to be hyper-focusing on food and on diet. The top cancer-fighting foods are coming your way the next time Dr. Funk will be here on the show. And I'll also be joined by Reverend Karen Crisp and her husband, Dr. Daryl Crisp. And Karen, she too is a breast cancer survivor. She's a thriver now. But what makes their story so unique and so interesting is really not just Karen's journey, but Daryl's too. Because when Karen was diagnosed, it was a double gut punch for Daryl. It was like deja vu because years earlier, Daryl had lost his first wife to this wretched disease. But this time, this time, my friends, things would be different. Because it was Daryl who discovered the power of lifestyle medicine. He had made major changes in his own life after his own health scare. And it was those changes that made all the difference for Karen in her battle. It is such an incredible story. And that is coming up very soon here on The Exam Room. And you know, we get so many incredible stories here on the show. So let's get another right now with a five-star health success. Karaoke, I like that name. Karaoke left a five-star rating and shared their success with us on a review on Apple Podcast. Karaoke writes, I've lost weight listening to these podcasts just by walking my dog every day for 12 months. And because I'm doing it slowly, I don't have any loose skin. I'm staying the course, and the recipes for fighting breast cancer are phenomenal. Karaoke, thank you so very much for writing. Jekyll, also with the five-star success. And Jekyll writes, this is my go-to podcast for health and inspiration. It is my first choice on my daily walk. The inspiring stories and research-based health information keep me on track with my goals and I love the interviews and the doctor's mailbag. Thank you for all you do to improve the health of everyone and promote the changes needed for a healthier planet. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. Especially the fact that they're walking. That was such a big part of my story. I didn't go to the gym. I just started walking and then I got up to five miles a day every day. And I would just put on my favorite podcast or listen to music and I would just go. So I completely understand where Jekko's at and Karaoke's at and hopefully where you can be at as well. I hope that you are getting a five-star health success out of this show for yourself. And if you are, we would love to hear about it. Love to hear how you're taking this information to improve your own health. If you would take a moment to let us know, leave a review right now, a five-star rating and a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Leave that review and we will do our best to read it here on the next episode of The Exam Room for another five-star success. 
And speaking of the next episode of The Exam Room, Dr. Neil Barnard will be back on the next episode for another live Q&A. The Exam Room Live is back filled with your questions and Dr. Barnard's answers. Two ways that you can join us, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube or on Facebook. Watch it there. Get your questions answered live. Or if you've subscribed to the show on Apple or Spotify, wherever, you'll get it delivered to you first thing on Thursday. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Allison Tierney and Dr. Christy Funk for continuing our Let's Beat Breast Cancer series and helping to raise our hope, our inspiration, and our health IQs. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. Plant-based.